Good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. We're going to call the Richmond City Council's budget work session to order. We, uh, Madam Clerk, if you would please uh, proceed with the evacuation announcement. Upon activation of the emergency alarm signal, all persons should immediately exit the building. Please use the exits to the left or right front of the council chamber or the east or west stairwell outside the rear doors of the chamber. Do not use elevators or escalators. After exiting the building, proceed to the assembly area located in the parking lot border by Clay 8th and 9th Streets. Citizens and employees should assist visually and hearing impaired visitors with exiting the building. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Uh, today we have uh, members, uh, five presentations, Commonwealth's Attorney's Office, Department of Police, Department of Fire and Emergency Services, Department of Emergency Communications, and Richmond Sheriff's Office. As in the past, we will uh, certainly direct our top two to three questions to the presenters as we may have them. If we have more than that, we will um, direct those such that our staff will follow up and get the responses and then get that information back to us. I'd like to recognize that we have the next uh, uh, young leader, uh, Officer uh, uh, Taylor, thank you for bringing your grand with us so that she can see how Richmond Gov operates. Welcome. Do you want to introduce her? Want to make sure we have the next... Uh, set of young leaders being groomed to come forward. Good morning, ma'am. Thank you, uh, President, President of Council, Newbill. I'd like to introduce to you the uh, next fire chief for the city of Richmond. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome, fire chief. If she would say her name and... Uh, say your name. 
Sorrel. Very. Thank you for joining us. And what year will that be for Fire Chief? A little while. (laughs) Welcome. Thank you for joining us this morning. With that, we'll start with the first presentation, uh, the Commonwealth's Attorney's Office. Good morning, Madam President, other members of council, Mr. Jackson, thank you for having me. Thank you for allowing me to go first. Uh, I see that you've allotted 40 minutes. I don't think it's going to take 40 minutes. Uh, My budget analyst has done a really good job of telling me to be clear uh, but efficient, and so I'll try to do that. This is the... um, First year for us to present to you under performance-based standards. Um, And so unlike years past where we've gone through the tortured exercise, at least in my opinion, of scrolling through page after page of numbers, we'll probably only spend time on one sheet of numbers. You see the mission of performance-based funding and accounting behind you. Uh, As I indicated, This uh, uh, exhibit sort of illustrates the dichotomy of old versus new. What stands out for me is that our budget, uh, the way that we have decided to do our job or at least account to you about our jobs is on the basis of our achievement of priorities. This past week, one of the lawyers in our office spent three hours literally talking to the 39 lawyers in the office about the important nuance between sort of linear prosecution and prosecution that is a function of several uh, realities, some internal and some external. The point being, uh, prosecution is a lot more than an A plus B plus C simple equation. All right. So... Our mission shouldn't be new to council. You know, at its core, our mission is to assist the police department and just about any other agency in the city who has any responsibility for or leverage over public safety. Our office, I think it's important to say, not so much for your purpose, Madam President, but for purposes of others in attendance, that our office has purely local jurisdiction. We collaborate with the Attorney General's office, we collaborate with the U.S. Attorney's office, but our focus is the prosecution of misdemeanors and felonies in Richmond General District Courts, Juvenile Domestic Relations Courts, and Circuit Courts. We work with any police agency that investigates a matter, determines probable cause for an offense that has occurred within the city over which we have jurisdiction. And it's important to add that last clause. If there's federal jurisdiction, for the most part, crimes are prosecuted federally. But the stuff that you hear about day in and day out in the news, particularly the, uh, the extreme violence, is always prosecuted in state court. So our objectives this year are ambitious, to say the least. They are not unique to Richmond. Um, Many localities around the state are beginning to try to reframe 
their focus on how they go about achieving public safety. You know from a document that we've published beyond containment that we're trying to enrich and drill down to the root causes for crime. Other jurisdictions around the state are beginning to take a look at that same page. But number one under our Department of uh, Objectives is to avoid uh, default felony conviction. And what that essentially means is uh, prosecute the offender competently, zealously, accurately, strategically, and uh, pursue and recommend felony convictions only when it's absolutely necessary. And this is something that I think is evolving nationwide, that the fact that a certain type of behavior may fit the statutory definition for a felony does not necessarily mandate that the person be convicted of a felony. That makes the most sense when you think about things that don't involve violence, but it, uh, it also makes sense with regard to crimes that involve primarily harm to the offender. Think narcotics usage. Uh, you all have supported us in bringing online a digital file system. Uh, frankly, it's a digital recording system that over time is going to allow the city to get a, uh, a, a data-driven sense of what we're doing. You'll never be able to get a data-driven sense of how we do it because I don't think you can reduce the practice of law to numeric data. You're always always going to require some degree of uh, of qualitative data for that. But in years past, for example, we've talked. You, on different occasions, members of, of this body have asked if I could give them statistics. Uh, on particular crime trends in particular districts, and we've not been able to do that. If I could give particular statistics on demographics for particular types of crime, we've not been able to do that. The only thing we've been able to do is with the assistance of the Supreme Court, more specifically the Sentencing Commission or the Crime Commission, is get you aggregate data on overall figures. So in year one, I could give you the total number of persons we prosecuted for rape or the total number of persons we prosecuted for ag assault, but I couldn't drill down to any more, uh, to detail at any sort of granular level. Hopefully, our case management system will allow us to do that over time. The third bullet, increase witness and community cooperation. This may be the most vexing and ambitious goal of all and frankly probably had more to do with our efforts on the root cause document than anything else. You, and you know this because you attend many of the same meetings that I do. There's an interesting dynamic at play out in the communities. Folks are certainly tired of the violence. Um, they have become impatient with, in many instances, the product that we deliver arrest and prosecution for particular offenses. What they want us to do is figure out a way to bend the curve on the overall behavior, not just uh, intercept the offender for what he's done. Well, along with that is this strange phenomenon that people have 
either lost faith in or refused to assist us in the way that they used to. So the police department and their representatives are here today, and I'm, I'm sure Chief Smith would echo this. Most of the time we get some degree or some modicum of cooperation at the scene, off record, behind closed doors. And a lot of times that information allows us to develop probable cause to make arrest and seek indictment. But there is a huge gulf between a report to an investigator that Mike Herring did a crime and that witness's willingness to actually sit in a witness chair or take the witness stand and testify that Mike Herring did the crime. And that's the disconnect that we've run into. So the department may very well be able to clear a case, and that is no small feat. Our ability to prosecute those cleared cases is almost solely a function of the community's willingness to stay on board, appear as witnesses, and testify. Sometimes we get digital evidence by way of uh, social postings, but everybody here is smart and, 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 and certainly understands that a public safety strategy that relies on the collection of Facebook postings and, and Snapchat is not a strategy at all. So in the coming year, in my opinion, one of the priorities of the city, at least of our office in conjunction with the police department, is figuring out a way to, if rebuild is not the right word, then certainly grow our credibility to um, enjoy more cooperation and assistance from the affected communities. Recidivism is an easy term for people to understand. Reoffending is the same thing as recidivism. The technical definitions of recidivism vary depending on who's talking about recidivism. But I think for the most part in Richmond, you are getting a good yield on your investment with alternatives. In other words, the people that we are diverting to the day reporting center, and those numbers are low right now. And, we, and, and hopefully we can talk about that the people that we are diverting to some of our other uh, alternative pathways, particularly our behavioral courts, the mental health docket, the behavioral health docket in circuit court, drug court, those people are performing over time extraordinarily well, meaning they are not recidivating. Where we are seeing the recidivism is at that young 18 to 24 cohort, and this isn't an epiphany, where essentially all we've done is responded to the behavior with some degree of incapacitation, but not address the trigger for behavior. That person will be back. And I, I hope it's not rocket science that if you don't address the trigger for the behavior, the person is going to reoffend over time again. Every year, I'm nervous when I talk to you all about all to when I talk to you all about alternatives because I'm concerned that in a given year, if we can't point to a specific uh, verifiable reduction in numbers, then that will make the case that the alternative isn't working. And every year thus far, I've been uh, 
I've had the good fortune of walking out of this chamber with no one taking action to cut the city's alternatives. I haven't heard any thoughts about that, but as the administration and the council searches for dollars, searches for fat in the budget, it's important to recognize that the, the yield on alternatives is long-term. Frankly, any alternative that achieves a remarkable yield within a 12-month period probably isn't doing it for the reason you think it is, right? The science tells us that it takes three to five years for alternatives to work, but the, the savings over time is worth it. But again, we can talk more about that if you'd like. And then re reduce the use of bail and secured uh, bail for pretrial release. We've talked about that for two to three years now, and I'm happy to spend as much or as little time talking about that as you'd like. So I want to find our number page. Let's see. Because at some point, someone will see that our administrative costs are going up. It is not accurate that our administrative costs are going up. Instead, the city is once again serving as a pass-through for a raise that is projected uh, at the state level for constitutional offices. And so several things have to happen. Our budget has to reflect an increase in revenue, but also an increase of expenditure. And so if at some point there's some concern about our administrative costs going up by 8%, that constitutes the 3% state raises, the corresponding increase in health care, retirement, and some degree of vacancy funding that I think is just good accounting and practice is what I've learned over the years from you all. So, um, you know, my budget's not exciting, but I'm, I'm certainly here to answer any questions you might have about anything I've addressed or anything that I haven't. Thank you, Mr. Herring. Council members, are there questions? Mr. Herring. Mr. Agilesto. I'm sorry, Ms. Rock. Yes. Thank you, Mr. Herring. Um, and you answered one of my questions about the pass-through of the state. Uh, so from your budget presentation, do you have an estimate of what uh, the city's share of any additional personnel uh, increases in your budget? The, you mean for purposes of the health care and retirement? Well, I believe, doesn't the city do supplemental? Right. Yes, yes, the city does supplement, but we have not requested any increase in supplement. So the, okay. the supplement dollars that the city provides to our offices uh, go directly to salary. I think you all generously increased our supplement two to three years ago. We've not asked for an increase since then. Instead, whenever there has been turnover in my office, I like to use the term cannibalize. I take the money, and you all call it vacancy savings. I take the money from other positions and cut it up and redistribute it among the office. We did that this spring with supplement dollars. But the supplement per se 
that line item should be constant. Okay. Um, so really the, the 190,000 increase in personnel services, most that should correspond to increase in revenues coming from the state? Correct. Okay. And then I understood in the state budget there's also a requirement of having one Commonwealth's attorney per 75 body-worn cameras. Yeah. And I know we've had this conversation. I believe we increased staffing a year or two ago to address this, or maybe it was storage, uh, digital storage or review time. Um, Are we compliant with that new requirement, or what is your assessment? We are functionally compliant. You're correct. A year ago or two years ago, when we saw, we anticipated the recommended staffing changes for body-worn camera footage, what we asked for was staff people to help, help us process the footage, get it out to defense counsel, and now with the case management system, integrate some aspects of it into the, uh, the data management. And so you gave us two staff people to do it. Your your prosecutors are really efficient in how they manage to comb through the body-worn camera footage, prepare cases, and push the discovery out the door. And what I've said sort of publicly is what I truly believe, that with the 39 of us, if you count me, we have an adequate number of attorneys to meet the body-worn camera needs. So I am not asking for more attorney personnel, depending on your demands of us over time, we may need more clerical staff to manage the the digital data. But even in that regard, right now, what we're working through is the growing pain of converting from a hard copy analog system to a purely digital system. And that is rough, but we're, we're working through it. Thank you. Madam President, my final question, and this isn't necessarily directed uh, at the Commonwealth Attorney's Office per se, um, but I, I did become aware that the public defender's salary compensation is not set by the State Compensation Board. It's set through the courts, and uh, they do not receive supplement. And one of the biggest issues, concerns that I hear coming from the public defender's office is about their salary and compensation and ability to retain staff where if you look at their tenure for the number of public defenders they have, I think there's only about four that have been around for more than a year or two. And I think your office has benefited from recruitment out of the public defenders. What's your assessment of that? And would you think that we should be doing a better job to convince the state um, to help uh, compensate fairly the public defender's role just as much as we do the Commonwealth attorney's role? I agree um, that it is a problem. I, you know, one potential complication could be that not every jurisdiction has an office of a public defender, whereas everyone has some degree of, of a prosecutor. So. I guess for the jurisdictions that do enjoy public defender support, the comp board in theory could provide funding. Um, Yeah, I've spoken to Ms. Painter, who's the public defender, and her predecessor, Susan Hansen, and I've never disagreed 
that it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to not supplement public defenders because their role in the criminal justice system is just as valuable as ours. One year, however, there was a suggestion from someone running for mayor, and the idea was cut the CA's budget and split the money between the CA's and the public defenders. That would have been a disaster, right? Because, well, you can imagine what would happen. I've always said good lawyers aren't hostage to any job, and you're blessed to have the lawyers you do in the Commonwealth Attorney's Office. And I just don't see how cutting our supplement to support the PDs would be a step in the right direction. But I do favor some support to the Public Defender's Office to achieve something akin to parity. Thank you, Mr. Herring. Ms. Robertson? Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Mr. Herring, for the uh, presentation on the budget and for the work that you're doing for the City of Richmond. Yes, ma'am. Um, we, um, my question is more in regards to the comment that you've made in regards to uh, persons uh, 18 to 24 and the behavior issues that we're not effectively addressing as it relates to the probability of recidivism. So my, and also uh, the gap and void that you're facing as it relates to witnessing and, and more community engagement and trust. And if any of the, uh, in the report that was done on the root causes, as to whether or not there is an alignment with um, those particular concerns that you raised and the report on root causes and how, how you see um, those two being used to effectively address those challenges. That's a tough question. Um, Trauma-informed is, is a term that's often used in education discussions. And the notion is trauma-informed curricula and trauma-informed classrooms uh, generate better outcomes. And I think Ms. Larson is, is much more of an expert than I on, on the intersection between trauma and education. But at least with regard to public safety, one thing that occurs to me now at the age of 53 and 28 years into practice is that a criminal decision may be anything but a criminal decision. Some people, I truly believe, offend for reasons of greed, choice, and anything else selfish. A lot of people end up offending because of momentum. And sometimes that momentum is the product of something that happened a lot earlier or something that is happening and the offender isn't even aware that it is happening. The folks at the Day Reporting Center have been have persuaded me that one of the techniques that they use, moral recognition therapy, just helping the offender appreciate the consequences for the dysfunctional thought, right? That that is regarded as a validated technique nationwide. So it's it's easy to think that 
one way to dis, that the best way to disrupt the behavior of a young man is through sports. I think it certainly helps. But most of the people that I represented for things that would really scare you, and many of the people that we prosecute for things that scare you, aren't going to change their behavior because they have an opportunity to participate in a sport. They change their behavior when it occurs to them that it makes sense to do something different. And if you've, and I know you have, but when you're in a general district court or when you're in a, uh, a circuit court, the, the trial process doesn't really involve much about the offender's mind beyond criminal intent. You don't get to anything about the offender's thinking until sentencing, and by then the damage is already done. So I'd like to see the city explore ways of trauma-informed prosecution. And I can say prosecution, not criminal justice, because I can't speak for the courts, but at least a scenario under which you all are asking us to make our decisions about what and how to prosecute with more information about the offender's baseline or background. I think that will reveal the triggers that we can then try to suppress um, so that we impact the recidivism for that 18 to 24 cohort. But again, it's, it's you know, one of the reasons that, that, that I'm talking about this publicly is it won't work if it's just me and Will Smith advocating it or me, Will Smith, and Councilwoman Robertson. It's got to be, it's, it's got to come from voices, non-stakeholder, that people in the affected communities have to buy into this because it is going to be a long-term process. And it, it means some degree of community management for people that have heretofore been supervised behind bars. And that's why it has to be a community conversation. Just to follow up, Madam Chair. Um, yes, Councilwoman Robertson. Yes. So your comment as relates to a larger stakeholder involved in the conversation and a community, a community management model. Um, do you see this as one of the strategies as it relates to building this necessary as it relates to the community co trust component? Yes, to the extent I have an ulterior motive, you revealed it. Okay. I, I think a very probable offshoot of that conversation is going to be increased buy-in from the community because they're going to have a sense that, as my colleague Iman Shabazz says, we have an appreciation for their lived experiences. And one of the things that we learned in the focus groups is we think the experience of the people in the affected communities is A, and what they told us in no uncertain terms was that the experience is D. And I don't mean grade level, but it's just very different from our assumptions. And so we expect cooperation from them with a misunderstanding of how they perceive the world and how they perceive the criminal justice model. 
in a conversation, a community conversation about root causes where everybody can be candid, where we can celebrate our successes but admit our failures, I think will build a whole lot of credibility. And so um, I would ask you if you would be willing to work with with the council as the council uh, chair see fit to do so, uh, to work through that process of how we can work together to achieve those goals and objectives, because I think they're critically important um, as it relates to the long-term sustainability of reducing crime. And I would also say that um, in regards to your comment in regards to sports, um, RVA League has gotten a lot of uh, attention uh, with the police support as it relates to the activities that they are doing, and I do know that they do more than play ball. Yes, ma'am. And we've been told that there's been a significant uh, reduction and persons that I engage as it relates to them uh, committing crimes uh, through that process. So whereas it may not be a uh, solely a remedy to, to, to the situation, it has demonstrated significant merits and support uh, by the police department and the community as it relates to the activities that are going on with them and uh, we would hope to continue to provide those services to support those people that are benefiting in, the, in this way. And, and I, I agree with that. You know, it, one thing I will say, because I didn't mean to throw any more of a barb toward the police department than I obviously did, is that you, you, I think you could replicate the same dynamic with arts. I agree. I agree. Music. Yeah, and I agree. There's a tendency, though, in cities to assume that the only way to reach male, particularly male offenders, is through sport vectors, and that's just not true. That, uh, that perhaps is the better point I should have made. I agree, but I do think what we've done with the sports is working for us, but yes, certainly there are other avenues. Thank you very much. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Hare. I have something. Yes, Ms. Trammell. Thank you, Madam President. I would like to thank you for coming to our um, public safety meeting the other day, and I know that um, you answered a lot of questions that were on our minds, and also I know that you said that you would get back with us on some of the other issues that we had, and also I just want you to know that I appreciate you and I appreciate your office. I appreciate everything that you all do, and I know a lot of times you all don't get to thank you that you deserve, and I know that um, I've even had some of my citizens call me and tell me how nice your office was when they when I gave them the number and your people answered their calls and took their calls and got back with them. So I just wanted to say thank you for that. Thank you, Councilwoman. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Herring, um, I'd like to similarly uh, thank you for the work of the office overall, but certainly your leadership in terms of the root cause analysis work that's been um, a part and the report that's come out of that, understanding the importance and implications of uh, trauma in all of this work. So just, uh, again, would like to thank you uh, for your leadership in this regard. And um, without duplicating comments from either of my council colleagues, thank thank you you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Next presentation will be the Department of Police.
Welcome, Chief. Good morning. President Newbill, ladies and gentlemen of council, good morning. I'm William Smith, Interim Chief of Police. I would like to begin by talking about our goals and objectives. We are like uh, other agencies. We have gone to the performance-based budgeting system, so you will see some differences from last year to this year. And there are some of my comments are going to echo what Mr. Herring has said. Um, our goal as the police department is to make Richmond a safer city through community policing and engagement. Our objectives are to build legitimacy through engagement and transparency, increase partnership with underserved and underrepresented communities, and these two go hand in hand. Um, you have a police department that does a very good job in what I call its core services, which is responding to calls for service, investigating criminal activity, and bringing those cases to close. In fact, we are the model that many agencies come across the country to take information back to their own agencies. Where I look at the future is where we can become and have greater impact on our, on our city in terms of public safety and our ability to impact people's lives. And in, from my standpoint, where we have our greatest impact and greatest potential change in future safety is our ability to engage a wider variety of people and have greater intervention strategies that will cause prevention rather than response to crime. Um, the RVA League for Safer Streets, which Mitch Robertson referred to, is, is one of many programs that we have great faith in. Um, and I think Mr. Herring said it very well. The momentum that somebody has uh, often takes them as a passenger in their life um, on a path that they necessarily did not choose nor do they want. And what we have found in our, in our, in our engagement and intervention is that they, are, they know that they don't necessarily want to be on that path, um, but they need to be able to trust someone um, to be able to accept assistance and accept programs that we have available before they're willing to step off that, that momentum that brought them to that point. And I, um, the other thing I want to touch on that, that Mr. Herring stated was that we have been fortunate that our data has supported our strategies over the years. And I, I too share the concern that sometimes our data may not necessarily reflect the efforts or good work that goes into it. And one of the statements that I've made frequently to our partners in RVA League is what does success look like? Success can be a single person. It can be that one individual that we change their, their life's um, trajectory. And in those ways, a, a program can have great success because not only do we gain somebody who is not in the criminal justice system, but a family gains, gains their son, their daughter, 
their brother, their spouse, and we gain a role model in the community. And I do think we can gain positive momentum in the community by having more individual successes of that nature. So in those two primary goals that we have as an agency, that's where I see our greatest impact in the future, is having an increased number of intervention strategies and engagement opportunities that allow us to have an impact before criminal activity occurs, as well as providing a support network for those who have uh, offended and who are returning home. So when we talk about those who have made mistakes, we need to have a understanding that um, a mistake is not a life sentence, that a mistake is something that can be learned from, and that the more support that we have, not only as a police department, but as a community for those who are returning, uh, the more success that they are able to have without going into uh, criminal activity. Further, as an objective, I would like to increase our capacity as a staff through development of that staff, efficiency, and performance measures. Um, we, need to do our, we need to do our job more efficiently and effectively, and that's through a number of methods internally, both through technology as well as through management strategies and performance measures. Lastly, I wish to promote professionalism through accountability discipline and training. And um, if, I, if I may take a little bit of editorial uh, sidetrack, uh, there was an incident last week which I am ashamed of um, in which an officer of mine made comments to youth at a middle school. Uh, I can assure you that, that, is, that those statements and those actions are not reflective of the values of this agency nor my values. They do not reflect the training uh, or the policies that we have as an agency. Um, as a result of that, that officer was brought in that day and has been through our internal affairs unit, and I have it on, I have it on faith that I will have that report on my desk this afternoon, and I can assure each of you that my response to that will be rapid. Um, I intend to have a press conference on this matter later this week when I can share more information. As an agency, we have a number of performance measures that are spread throughout the department in terms of making sure that we provide the best service possible to the city and to you as a governing body. At the base of that, though, are our key performance measures to reduce violent crime by 13%, to reduce property crime by 9%, and to reduce overall major crime by 9%. To give you a snapshot of where we are currently, we ended the calendar year 2018. Oh. Sorry. Rookie mistake. So uh, we ended calendar year 2018 with a reduction in violent crime by, of 8%. That includes a 20% reduction in homicides. We had essentially no change in property crime and then an overall reduction 
of major crime by 1%. Currently, in the first quarter, we have a reduction of violent crime by 7%, 17% reduction in homicides, uh, 7% reduction in property crime, and overall reduction of 7% in major crimes. And this equates to about 155 fewer, fewer crimes through the first quarter of this year versus last year. This budget is about personnel. Um, almost every budget is about personnel because that's the bulk of what our monies go to, but it's about applying funding to support ongoing career development both in the sworn and civilian side and, and implementing the Gallagher study uh, piece by piece. When this body was seated a few years ago, we came before you and, and described the challenges that we had on the sworn capacity and our attrition rates. Um, I appreciate the support that y'all have given us over the years, and we knew then and continue to know now that this is not a single-year solution. It is a piece-by-piece -piece addressing of the challenges that we have as a policing organization, and I appreciate that, uh, that support through the years. Um, this budget supports a step for all sworn personnel. It also increases our sworn uh, starting salary from 41000 to 43000 This takes us from no longer being the lowest paid in the region uh, as a starting salary, which I am very pleased with. Um, it will add five community outreach specialists to our organization, and these will be assigned to each precinct, and their job will be to improve our community relations, to organize community functions, and, again, build those relationships and uh, engagements that we rely so heavily upon. It further supports the RVA League for Safer Streets as it continues to gather momentum and get on its own feet. And it transfers school crossing guards to the RPS system where they should uh, flourish. So, subject to your questions, I will, uh, I'll answer anything that you have. Thank you, Chief. Members, are there questions? Mr. Jones? <coughs> Ms. Robertson, to be followed by. Yeah, yes, ma'am. Thank you, Madam President. Uh, Chief, I, I appreciate um, your, your willingness um, and your leadership to come and address the issue. Um, and if, if there's something I've learned quickly about you is that you will uh, address matters uh, forthrightly. And so I appreciate that. I didn't need to send you a formal letter uh, to come find you. Um, leadership um, typically stands uh, in, in troubled times. Um, what, what happened and what I heard and in talking with uh, 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 the mother of one of uh, the young people, it, it, it's not welcomed in this city. And, and I need to say that as, uh, as a father, as a leader, and as uh, a legislator um, in our city, that that is unacceptable on any front. Um, and, and I know it's difficult to um, be on the front line, to be the one that is criticized or receives comments, but 
we are in positions in which we must seek to de-escalate and not escalate. But um, that wasn't shown in that. And, and I don't know if you wish to comment now or, or, or what. We do a great job in labeling what our organizations or statements or actions are not, that this is not reflective of and this does not show of. But we never do a good job of labeling what they are. And I think that's troubling, that you can never really control a thing until you can name a thing and you're willing to, you know, speak openly about what it is. I understand it's not reflective of uh, our city. I know it's not reflective of uh, our department. I know it's not reflective of community policing. But again, you know, what I'm looking for is for it to be named, for it to be called out what it is. Uh, it was insensitive. It was racist. It was reckless. It was an abuse of power. That's what I would love to hear from leadership. And that may come in the way of a press conference. That may come in the way of um, some other opportunity. But I, I just want to put that out there, that these things need to be need to start being named and labeled as what they are, not just this is not who we are as uh, an organization or as um, a city. Um, it's difficult to see this happen in any state, any part of this country. Um, and, you know, we've heard the sound bites before that this is not our city. We're not Ferguson. We're not all these different places. But when it shows up and creeps up in our city, um, I just want to see the same type of leadership through this process uh, as you are providing here today. Uh, but I hope there is a naming and the labeling of what was done. Uh, by those that uh, are in positions of power uh, and leadership uh, with your force. Uh, I appreciate the fact that you answer phone calls. And, and I know that might seem trivial, but that, that's important. We are the voice of our communities. Um, all 20,000 people that I represent can't make a phone call to you at the same time. Um, and so the calls that come from council they are on behalf of others who are voiceless and don't have that opportunity. So I just want to thank you for um, being open, for your captains and sector lieutenants being open and accessible uh, on days that they're supposed to be off. Um, and I think that's who we are as a city. I think that's who we are uh, as a community. I believe that's who we are as an organization. Um, that we are open, open and accessible to those that we are called to protect and serve. So, um, Mr. Chief, I appreciate you. Thank, Thank you, you, Mr. Jones. And, um, so just in response to that, if I, if I could, um, if I knew how to quantify what occurred, I would, I would address it that way. There are, um, the only thing that I know of is the small segment of time that was captured on that video. And so I don't know what occurred prior to or immediately thereafter, which would uh, allow me to identify really what the uh, totality of circumstances are in that situation. Um, and I think that would, that will have a decidedly defining uh, matter in, in how we define that, that contact. Uh, and then secondly, I, I do appreciate the comments greatly. I, I agree and support you. Um, I look at it that uh, now I have, I have a couple of bosses 
Um, but the fact is, I actually have about 230,000 bosses, so I try to be as responsive as I can to everyone. Uh, so thank you. Thank you. Chief, you did say that uh, you would have a report on your desk today and that you would be um, holding a press conference specifically relative to this item before the week is out. Is that correct? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Thank you. Ms. Robertson? Thank you, Madam Chair. Good morning, Chief. Good morning. Uh, thank you for the report and for the work that you're doing in our communities to keep us safe. It's a huge responsibility that you Ms. Robertson? put on Thank you. line, uh, put your lives on the line every day. And so we are grateful for the services that you provide. Um, my questions are in regards to the five new positions um, regarding community outreach and the, at the cost of <clears throat> $290 thousand dollars and also the transfer of the uh, school crossing guards um, at about two hundred and forty eight thousand dollars um, the community outreach initiatives uh, I appreciate the comments that you've made and uh, one of the things that I sometimes hear from the community is that we really want our police department, as well as the Commonwealth Attorney's Office, to be about really locking up bad guys. And um, when we built the new justice system uh, center, one of the things that the city made a policy was to make sure that we provide alternative means to incarceration to keep the actual number of inmates to a number that we all agreed on. Um, and so there is some concern in the community that we are taking a more softer uh, uh, disposition as it relates to crime, and when we get more involved in addressing the whole human being and looking at prevention strategies. I'm a strong supporter of that, so I'm not questioning it myself. Um, but, I, but I am interested in understanding um, we do have departments that work specifically on addressing those challenges that people have and many times they are the same people that you're dealing with <clears throat> and to whether or not um, the resources is a interagency's uh, cooperation excuse me <clears throat> Um, or whether or not it requires to have additional staff within your department to be able to address those. And so the other question that has been suggested that staff has asked us as well to consider is whether or not those positions for the community officers are sworn positions. As it relates to schools, uh, are those full-time positions um, School crossing guards doesn't sound like it's a full-time job all day long, but uh, I would like to have a better appreciation of that as well. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for those questions. Uh, so if I can answer those in sort of reverse order. The uh, school crossing guards, as they existed under the police department, was a part-time position. And um, I will say that as individuals, they were extremely valued within the police department. They provided us 
with a great resource they were wonderful to work with and they provided a, uh, an extremely valuable service to the community uh, what we experienced over the past uh, really over the past 10 to 12 years was increasingly difficult challenges in terms of employment so we're looking at a job that you work for an hour and a half or so in the morning and then you come back and you work for an hour and a half two hours in the afternoon uh, and with fairly low pay that is an extremely challenging job to recruit for and hire within the police department and from a philosophical standpoint and a realistic standpoint we feel it's the capacity for those school crossing guards to be engaged in other things at the school allows uh, Dr. Cameras to be able to use them in a uh, in a broader sense to, that allows them to be uh, more of a full-time nature and have um, have better success in filling those and keeping those filled um, so from a from that standpoint we think it's a better fit under the school system than it is under the police department um, as a regards uh, you know the you mentioned that by and large the community is expecting us to be lock them up and throw away the key and I, and I disagree with that I think we are a public safety organization and what we do towards the efforts of public safety is again it's widely varied and that's what I'm pushing as an agenda within the department is that we need to be um, be able to have capacity to handle a wide variety of response techniques in addressing public safety as an organization and it should not matter whether we um, successfully arrest a person or successfully intervene in a person's life if public safety is improved then the process uh, is successful and when we look at drug addiction as a as a small piece of this our intervention strategies um, yes there are other organizations that deal with drug addiction but there's no other organization that has as many contacts as the police department does um, whether it's 300,000 calls for service a year and the hundreds of thousands of other contacts that we have um, throughout our daily lives uh, as we work through the city we have more contact with with any with more people in more challenging situations than any other agency and for us to be able to provide resources and provide guidance uh, oftentimes when somebody is in their most critical state um, that that can sometimes hit them in a positive way so um, I'll tell you personal personally what I've seen is that you don't know when somebody is really willing to accept help right and when we talk about addiction addiction is very challenging because it's it's omnipresent in the back of that person's head I, I need drugs I need drugs I need drugs um, but also in the back of their mind is I would really like to not be on drugs and so there are opportunities that we cannot predict when that occurs that they're willing to say I've had enough and I'm willing to accept help so when we talk about our engagement processes at overdose every single overdose victim a detective responds we have we have the ability to get them into a program starting right then all they have to do is accept that and so when we talk about 
how we achieve public safety, um, it isn't about just arrests. It's about it's about engaging people when they're at their worst possible moments in life. It's about intervening and, and developing points in a young person's life where a strategy may be more successful than later on in life. It's about meeting with people who are getting ready to return from prison and giving them opportunities that they might not necessarily see or, or believe are there. Um, all of those things contribute to our ability to improve public safety in the city. Are they sworn officers? Are they sworn officers? Oh, I'm sorry. No, they are not. They're not. Um, okay. Well, like I said, I, I support more intervention for prevention. Um, but I also think that it's important when we begin a new initiative that we have a better appreciation for how it's going to work and how mm-hmm. it's going to make a difference and how we can know that there are indicators that we're using to measure that it is more cost-effective to to do this type of policing uh, in conjunction uh, with the sworn officer's duties um, uh, to be sure that um, the outcomes are things that we have predetermined that we want and we know that this model is going to work effectively in achieving that. So um, some follow-up information to make sure that happens. And then I would also like some follow-up information on what your, what's, where are your current uh, school crossing guards and what their duties are. I hear you saying at those hours that schools open and, and um, when kids get out of school. Um, but we want to make sure that, and also in conjunction with Richmond Public Schools as to whether or not those services are going to be continued uniformly or whether they're going to be changed. So if we have an appreciation for what you have been doing over the period of time, that would help us better uh, in the conversation with Richmond Public Schools as to whether or not services are changing. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Thank you, Mr. Addison and then Ms. Larson. Thank you, Council President. Um, Chief Smith, I appreciate your your comments in addressing the incident that happened in the first district uh, on Monday as well on Friday as well. Um, it's been a difficult weekend, kind of coming to terms with all that. And through my involvement with your office, um, participating in two of your your trainings for your officers, your new your new recruits, and just knowing, I think, the values and behavior that you instill in your officers that this is not a representation of the whole. And for my interaction with some senior officers in your staff over the weekend, um, because I wanted to make sure that I knew as much as I possibly could to before I made a reaction or a, a response to what was clearly inappropriate and unprofessional behavior uh, for anybody to receive that, whether a student, a parent, or a resident, um, is beyond me. And it is, from my assurance through some of them, most of them, confirm that this is not anything close to what is part of your department. Um, I do echo, I think, this, the sentiments expressed by Councilman Jones about, you know, defining who we are. And I know that is part of your message and, and, and aspects, but maybe the public doesn't know what you do instill through your training and repeated pieces. Um, I would like to see from your response as you're preparing that, are there any policies that need to be updated or, or tightened up to make sure that this is not a, this does not occur again? 
Um, I believe that you fully have that in your control and are in charge of that already, but to be able to express that to our public is going to be important. Uh, I know that this, we've worked hard over the past couple of years as a council to make sure that you are fully staffed to be able to not have overtime or stress factors play into behavior like this, and we've worked hard together to achieve that. And I believe that we can work together to further make this department the best, not only in the Commonwealth, but an example for the country. So uh, I just wanted to implore you to do more and to continue on your efforts and to address this and just appreciate your, your response so far. And I know you will continue to be a conversation moving forward. So I want to make sure that was clearly expressed, my appreciation for that, but also knowing that we have work to do as well. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Larson. Um, thank you. So a follow-up to the crossing guards um, discussion. So it's my understanding that right now the training for the crossing guards is through RPD. That is correct. Yes, ma'am. So would it remain, if, if this is transferred to the schools, would you all continue to train them, but they would report in to Richmond Public Schools? Uh, that is to be determined, but uh, it is something that I would certainly be willing to, to assist with. If, uh, if the training process is something that schools would like us to continue to do, then we can provide that training. Okay. I, I would definitely like you all to have that conversation sooner rather than later because the crossing guards that I've seen do a great job, but they're, some of the intersections are really complex, and I would want to make sure that they, are, they know what they're doing. Basically, and I think we have a really strong team right now. So, if Richmond Public Schools were to take it over and take over the training, that's a whole other budget item that we're talking about. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I just wanted to say thank you for your comments about what happened at the um, middle school last week. You and I talked on the phone and. Um, and I do appreciate that you responded to it quickly. And I'm, I was very upset about the incident, and I still am. And I just feel like it. the actions of one person took us back so far. And it was so unnecessary. But I'm, I'm glad you brought it up today and that you're being proactive and putting information out there as it's relevant regarding the situation. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Any other questions or comments? Ms. Gray and then Ms. Angelesto. So I want to thank you for um, recent events and your responsiveness and, um, again, for placing cameras where we're seeing activity. Um, you've been excellent with that. Um, one of the main criticisms when we get the comparative analysis reports from the state is that we are bloated with our police department, that our per capita spending is much higher than our counterparts. How do you respond to that? Well, I can respond in great detail on that. If, you're, if you would specify which counterpart you would like for me to discuss well, we're the highest per capita by far, and I know that our police budget exploded in the um, 90s to deal with the killings that were happening, but um, why are we so much higher than 
say at Norfolk? Well, I do appreciate that question, and I was actually very prepared for this, so thank you. Uh, when we talk about our comparisons, there are several cities that we look at um, to get an understanding of how we compare in terms of what our policing model is. Norfolk is one, Newport News, Chesapeake, Raleigh, and Cincinnati, and I also have information regarding Chesterfield because I believe that's one that, that you had asked about previously. Uh, when we look at the unemployment rate uh, for Richmond, it's uh, right around 4%. Norfolk is about 4.5%. When we look at poverty rates, poverty rates within the city of Richmond are at 25%, uh, thereabouts. Norfolk is at 21%. Um, when we look at our population density, we have a population density of about 3,500 per square mile, which we are uh, a much more urban city than Norfolk is. Our median income is less um, by a little bit than, than Norfolk. When we look at the number of people who are overburdened by rent, we're at over 53%. When we look at uh, those who within the city have some form of um, assistance being received, we're at over 40% within the city, which means we are, we are at a we're at a very tight margin for success or failure. When you're, when you're receiving government assistance, there are, there's little safety net. If your car breaks down, you could very well lose your job. If, um, if you're, when the government shutdown occurred, there's much more needs there than, uh, than in other cities. When we look at uh, Section 8 housing, we are almost double what Norfolk has. We're at almost 9,000 versus 5,000 uh, for them. When, um, when we look at police calls for service, we're at 346,000 uh, during the last reporting period compared to 255,000 for Norfolk. So when we look at each jurisdiction and what the expectations of the community has, as it relates to both calls for service, people call when they need help. And that may be a criminal matter, it may be a civil matter, it may be a family matter, it may be a personal matter. Um, but I think when we look at the volume of calls for service that we receive as an agency, it reflects trust that we are gonna come there and we are gonna provide positive results in those engagements. Um, so just, and I, I hear you, um, Basically, you're saying that the poverty is a driver of the need for more officers or services and the public safety? It is, it is beyond poverty. It is in terms of what are the expectations of this community. Um, poverty certainly is a factor. And when we look at the density of our, of our big housing communities uh, and the We'll just call it the way what it is. It, the the way that was done in a racist fashion to place a whole lot of people in a poor position, um, that's had a long-term impact on this city, that we are having a, we've had an extremely challenging time to dig out of that decision from 60 years ago, 70 years ago. So, um, so when we talk about comparisons with other cities, other cities have addressed their public housing uh, in positive ways. Uh, other cities have different employment processes, different rent uh, expectations. 
Um, so the differences are both complex and, and myriad in nature. And in those details lies the difference between what the expectations are for us versus what the expectations are for other agencies. Thank you. Um, so it's kind of difficult because I say that there was at one time a larger bu- budget that's been broken down, I guess, because of the performance-based yes, model. Um, it's difficult to monitor what increases I'm saying here, but a few things did jump out at me, and um, a couple of them. There's police operations um, conduct four annual town hall meetings to keep the community informed of crime statistics, public safety concerns, and that's roughly a million dollars in that line. I'm just going to throw a couple of them out. Um, conduct 34 event-driven activities in which youth participate and the needs of youth are addressed. Two and a half million for that. And then there's another um, support services, community youth intervention, and that's conduct prevention, community education forums, academies, including citizen and theme academies, and that's $600,000. It just seems seems like an incredibly large amount of money for so few meetings. No, I, I certainly appreciate that, that question. So the, um, the cost of that is not just for those meetings. The cost of that is that particular functional area. That is a performance goal that we selected. There are other performance goals that are related to each one of those line items. Each one of those line items, particularly for the, uh, the community meetings that you mentioned, that's that's my staff. That's chief staff, the, uh, the chief of police's office. So among the other various performance measures, that's the one that we selected for that particular functional area of the department. So, they, they include uh, salaries and compensation for all the persons that are uh, captured under that call center. So is that all they would be doing? No. So why would... And that's what I'm having a, I got you. a problem so, with because it says that the actual expenditure in FY 2018 for the 34 event-driven activities in which youth – I'm just taking the one from the examples. It says that the actual expenditure for that was roughly 37000 and now we're saying it's going to be $2.6 million. Madam President, members of council, yes. Ms. Gray – my name is Shannon Paul with the City of Richmond Budget Department. From an overall perspective, I just want to say that as we're implementing performance-based budgeting, we're not identifying at this point a one-for-one match between the outcomes of a particular performance measure and the dollars provided. We're aligning the service that it takes to conduct that performance measure, but we're not saying that those dollars that you see are only related to that particular outcome, if that makes sense. So they, then it could potentially be double counting. If it's two and a half, two point six million for these thirty-four meetings, that's what it's saying. It it actually is not saying that. It's saying that that is one particular set of activities that's happening within that budget, but it's not a one-for-one match there. 
as the chief said, there are other activities so, going on. So why other- didn't we break it down by how many hours it's going to take to do the 34 meetings? You take that portion of the salaries. How much, if you're serving food, how much you budget for that, if you have to pay for a venue or custodians or et cetera, and then put the actual amount to meet those 34, the goal of having those 34 meetings. Because right now it looks like it's going to cost $2.6 million to have 34 meetings. As we continue with the implementation of performance-based budgeting, we do hope to be able to identify man hours uh, for a particular measure, but that is not what we're doing now. We're at the beginning stages of trying to align the services that are provided to achieve particular measures of importance. There are other measures that the department may be um, looking at, but again, there's not a one-for-one match between the performance measure listed and that the budget allocation for that service. So, so say I'm one of the people that's responsible, and I have other duties under the operation, and you're showing those as performance goals. Are you going to count my salary under those performance goals that match up to the other things that I'm doing? The salary is included in that budget amount, but we're not at a point right now where we're looking at how many, uh, if I'm understanding your question correctly, hours uh, an officer or staff member is using to achieve that performance measure. Mr. Brown, are you coming forward with something? Good morning, Jay Brown, Director of Budget and Strategic Planning. Um, yes, uh, Mrs. Paul's um, comments were accurate. As we are moving forward with this pilot program with performance-based budgeting, um, we are trying to work with the departments to come up with the most accurate measures. Um, we do expect and intend that as we move forward that there will be additional measures, um, and that's something that we will be showing within the future. But at this point right now, we're working with every agency to identify um, some of the measures that are related to those services. So, so my question is around, so if, yeah. if I'm employee A and 25% of my time is spent on these 34 meetings, only 25% of my salary should be reflected in the budget for that goal. So if, if the other 75% of the time I'm doing something important to the mission, but not this, then that portion of my salary by performance should be reflected on that line. So if what you're saying is this is 100% of the salaries of the people, but not reflective of what it's going to cost to do these 34 meetings, then it's, it's almost impossible for me to figure out what it's going to, what it actually costs, because right now we're looking at Budget-wise, that's an awful lot of money that I think, if it's for 34 meetings, could be put to better use. So is there any way, I I think, to get – this is an aggregated number, the individual categories that are collapsed into here, the salary, the friends, the events, the – I think that's what is being asked, how to – we this can, is an aggregate. Yes, ma'am. Across and all of the categories, how do you get here? 
Yes, ma'am, and we can absolutely work with police to try to break that down specifically for that specific measure. And I guess that's the, the question throughout Correct. the document. It's not just that I'm not picking on right. that one item. I'm just I, trying I to get heads or tails of what's actually being stated. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. I do understand the point that you're making, and in theory, I agree with you. But I want to be emphatically clear, there is not a one-for-one -one match so right. with, from that performance measure to the dollars allocated. Those dollars allocated are for a service, a service in which community meetings are being held, but there are many other things that the officers or the staff are doing. We do fully expect, moving forward, to be able to pull out the amounts of time for various performance measures, but at this point, we're really trying to just seek alignment between the services that are provided and what are some critical performance measures that does not equate to the totality of the department's budget. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Agilesto. Thank you, and, and perhaps my read was along the lines of Ms. Gray's in trying to understand the budget as presented. Um, and the, the line item that I focused in on wasn't necessarily the same, but um, I would think that this is a much easier analysis for recruits and training. Uh, it says we're going to conduct three academies a year. And it says, well, we, recruit, we did three academies in 19 at a cost of $5 million plus. We're going to do three academies in 20 at a cost of $7 million plus. Why, if we're doing the same number of academies and understanding that the salaries for recruits is going up $1,000, $2,000, why is it the total budget for the academies going up over $2 million year over year for the same number of academies, which would presumably be the same number of recruits? Are you looking at uh, 1201? What, what specific line item? The specific line item, uh, I think it's related to the academies, but if you give me one second, I'll... It's um, police operations. It's under the police operations. It's the third one and down from police operations. Yeah. SV1201. Okay, so that reflects the uh, 118th and 119th basic rec recruit training class. Um, that also includes an operating budget of 404,000. Operations include uh, ammunition, which has gone up um, by a fair amount, not uh, clearly not $2 million. Uh, indoor firing range maintenance, academy grounds maintenance, and EVOC training dollars. Um, well... So we currently have to rent a EVOC training facility, which we did not have to do uh, in years past. We have lost our ability to do that uh, at no cost. We've had significant um, costs in terms of infrastructure within the academy. There has been essentially a no replacement of furniture within that since it was built and that was in 2000 or 2001, no, excuse me, 90, 94 was when that uh, facility was built. So there are some funds that are 
allocated within that service code related to the training academy that are above and beyond an actual training academy class. It's not just the recruit class. It's the operations of the entire training academy, the facility, um, and obviously, you know, in the case of firearms training, it, it includes uh, training for the entire police department. So just to yeah. follow up, <clears throat> you know, when you say, well, grounds maintenance is in there um, and replacement of uh, furniture and other uh, one-time expenditures are in there, I'm not so sure that's how performance-based budgeting is supposed to be reflective because truly it should be equal to what the outcomes are. Right. If we're talking about replacing computer systems, you're going to have a separate line item in your budget that says we're going to replace 150 computers this year. Here's the cost. I'm sure that there's furniture needs in the headquarters and precincts and academies. And if that's all kind of being thrown in here saying, well, we're going to get three academies out of throwing furniture, I have no idea what the $2 million is for. I really don't. Um, and I think that that's, it's very opaque, very opaque. And when we've been talking about having a more transparent budgeting process, frankly, the way that this is being rolled out isn't good for transparency. Um, so I, I, I just question that and uh, echo some of the comments that Ms. Gray had issued, um, and maybe we could get a little bit more of a breakdown on the academy. Um, you know, grounds maintenance, it was my understanding that DPW was responsible for all the grounds maintenance. So now we're hearing that the police are budgeting for grounds maintenance. I, there are just some things that... I, I don't mean grounds like cutting grass. I mean maintenance of the facility. So, uh, Chief, can we and staff get the breakout that Mr. Adelesto is asking about for and, this category, and, clearly delineated. Thank you, Council President. Not, I mean, clearly not in this moment, but uh, Megan Brown will follow up, and Mr. Adelesto, if you have. So, but, and I do have add. some other, other questions, but, I, and I don't know what an EVOC training facility is, so you can maybe articulate what EVOC stands for, but. Emergency Vehicle Operation Course. Uh, that was where we were out at King's Dominion. Correct. King's Dominion is not partnering with us anymore? We have it, to, would it help for somebody who serves on a board with the King's Dominion president to talk to them about this? Yes, okay. it would. Then, then talk to us. <laughs> you know, we, we serve on a lot of boards with different people, and we're more than welcome to help. But what I'm now hearing is that we're going to have to enter into a separate lease what kind of a lease are we talking about, with whom, at what cost? Because, as I understand, the council is responsible for all leases except for short term, which I think we defined as less than a year. And if we're only doing leases less than a year, it certainly means that it's going to jack up our costs. So that's the type of stuff that I think would be much more important for the council to hear is, hey, we've got to lease a new facility, it's the council's responsibility to determine facilities, needs, uses, and entering into, into leases. 
So um, if you could share some more details offline on, the, on that. Well, uh, actually, if it's more than offline, if you would provide that information to make it. Oh, okay. To right. make so that that can come back to all council members, and thank you for raising Absolutely. that. Absolutely, as a follow-up. Yes. I thought you meant just, a okay. All right. right now. Thank um, you. And one more question. I got three. Okay, so Ms. D'Angelo. And I, I would just put them on the record and then they perfect. can. Um, I see where patrol is going up a million dollars. Again, I think it would be helpful. There's nothing in there about what the target is for patrol. So for an additional million dollars, how many more miles of patrol are we going to get? How many new neighborhoods, how many hours of coverage does that get us for a million dollars? And there's no target presented in a performance-based budget. That's the type of stuff that I think we need to better assess how this budget is being rolled out. Uh, traffic enforcement, is that connected to the way that uh, traffic, uh, the school crossing guards, were they in that? Are they Even if you don't have the response. Yeah, okay. If you'll just make note of those. I'll okay. No, our staff person is making note of the I, questions for I you, just see so. accordingly through all the service areas, traffic enforcement is going down over $300,000 through different areas. And all I can say is, oh my God, that's the biggest complaint that I get from the constituents about what RPD is not doing. And that is traffic enforcement. And we lower speed limits and we say we want zero fatalities, but we're not achieving that. We're having pedestrian deaths. We're having people literally single car accidents killing themselves because they're flipping, dragging on, on crutch field. I mean, these are problems that, that we know we can save lives, but we're seeing our traffic enforcement dollars drop. And I don't think that's the appropriate direction for the, the police budget. Did so, you, well, um, did you get all, all of your questions? And yes, those, again, those we're are all not, of my questions. Okay, so we're not looking for the responses in this moment necessarily. I see Ms. Cuffey Glenn, if there's some comment relative overall. Um, our staff has uh, captured the questions. If that is there. Madam President, yes. Selena Cuffey Glenn, Chief Administrative Officer. Uh, thank you very much. And certainly we're hearing the questions, and we will respond as it relates to some of the details that are being requested. But we're not going to get in a tit for tat as relate to some of the responses. We want to make sure we clearly articulate what is happening within the police budget. We think the budget that's been pre presented is a budget that will allow the police department to continue to provide the service, the exceptional services that it does every single day. But certainly we'll take all the questions that you have and we will respond based Thank upon you. your staff certainly enumerating those. So um, our staff person has those questions. We will get those to you. Ms. Trammell is next. And this will, we will finish this up because we are, we have Madam three President, more presentations. Madam President, yes. not, not criticize or anything, but I think that when it comes over here on this side, it's like we're being like not given as much time as the other side per se. I'm not, so, okay, can you be okay, a little we'll, clearer? We'll talk. But Chief, I want to say thank you for returning my calls and thank you for I don't know. Um, reaching out to me when different things have happened in my community or in my district. I appreciate everything. I have just a couple questions. If a school crossing guard calls in sick, would RPD um, cover their assignment if this is turned over to the schools? We will take that question and also respond. Okay, and that came up earlier, Ms. Trammell. I 
Madam President, I'm talking to the chief, please. And um, also, if a school guard position becomes vacant, will RPD cover the assignment until Richmond Public Schools? We'll take all the questions okay. and respond accordingly. Any additional? Uh, and also, Trial? Chief, I want to say thank you and all your officers for a great job that you all do. I know that um, every day there's different, or every time a call comes in, our officers have to be prepared to face whatever they, you know, have to face. But I know that um, my people just, especially my seniors, they're just so grateful that when they say that they don't want to see an officer, you all don't come, you all, co you know, you don't come to their house, but you will call them back on the phone and see if everything is okay after y'all leave. And I just want to say thank you. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chief. Ms. Gray, last item. Yes. These are, these are a couple more questions that have come up that don't need to be answered right at this moment, but um, it came up, a couple of things came up in our public safety meeting that I wanted to make sure we got on the record here, and that's career development. And you, you gave a response, but I, I think it's important for everyone to understand what's happening with career development. Um, we talked about lateral pay, which you said is not an issue with the Gallagher um, for police. It may be for fire. Um, and the, um, and what was the, oh, and prostitution. We talked about that and what the response might be to start addressing because you heard from several council members that prostitution is an issue and um, we've seen an uptick. So those are the three things that we addressed in public safety committee that I thought were important to have brought to the whole. Thank you, Ms. Gray. Chief, thank you, and thank you, Ms. Cuffey Glenn. The next uh, presentation will be the Department of Fire and Emergency Services. I am sorry, Ms. Robertson, was there a, is there a question that we could get to our staff so that we can go on because we have exceeded our time for that presentation? Just want to make sure mind? that we get balanced time, that's all. Thank you. Thank you. And I will work to ensure that that is the case. Thank you. Chief Carter, welcome. And Chief, you do know that there's the mini chief back there, right? Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. Okay. Just wanted She's to, to remind you of that. asking questions, too. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, good morning, President Newbill, members of City Council. I am Melvin Carter, your fire chief here in the city of Richmond, and I proudly represent 434 men and women of our awesome organization, Richmond Fire Department. Our motto is serving with the spirit of excellence. Our mission is to provide safe, effective, and efficient emergency and non-emergency services built on strong relationships and designed to produce high-quality results. Our fire department is a all-hazards department, and what does that mean? That means we respond to any and everything. We assist our brothers and sisters in blue. We assist our brothers and sisters in uh, Richmond Ambulance Authority with medical calls. We respond when trains turn over. We respond to hazardous materials calls, and we respond to a plethora of incidents that you may not even believe someone would call the fire department for. Specifically, uh, we support community emergency education and disaster response, disaster preparedness, community risk reduction, which is formerly known as fire prevention, fire code enforcement and fire education, we respond to emergency fire, medical, and civil emergencies. We provide special operations 
services that include marine responses to include water rescue, technical rescue, hazardous materials response, and active threat incidents. We constantly focus on our employee safety and the general public safety. We also focus on the training and development of all of our employees. With, within that, we have a very robust logistical support and management of fiscal resources and operate, which operate from 25 stations and three support facilities across the city of Richmond. Just want to give you broadly at a very high level some of our calendar year 2018 accomplishments. As has been acknowledged here in front of this body, we did not experience a fire fatality in 2018. This is only the second time in Richmond's history, recorded history, that we can find that. There may have been, but it's been hard for us to identify other than the two times in 2003 and in 2018 that this has occurred. Uh, we thank city leadership, uh, my boss, as well as the mayor and you, city council. We hired 55 recruits in the past year. Uh, the Office of Emergency Management has revised our city's emergency operation plan, which is still under revision to make sure it's contemporary and up-to-date and ready to support the challenges that we may face. We supported multiple large city events and emergency events. We participated in five large-scale community outreach events. We hosted city council meetings at our fire stations, and we hope that you will continue that. The Office of Emergency Management supported six emergency operations center activations, and we were fortunate enough to put one fire apparatus, a new fire apparatus, in service in Howland Park at Station 15. We also enhanced our special operations teams, and we continue to partner with RPS with the fifth grade fire education program. Richmond Fire Department hosted the 2018 Equity and Diversity Conference. And Council, I want to personally thank you on behalf of the men and women of my department for supporting pay adjustments in the FY19 to address compression and stagnation. <clears throat> I sincerely uh, support the mayor's budget, and there were five questions um, that were posed to me uh, by council prior to this, and I have one more statement, and then I'll be able to take questions. Uh, the department's FY20 general fund budget provides step increases for our personnel, annual physicals for our firefighters, which helps with early detection of cancer and other catastrophic illnesses, it raises, as Chief Smith has already alluded to, it raises the minimum salary of positions of fire recruit to maintain competitiveness in our regional counterparts from 41000 to 43000 It funds our replacement of protective, protective clothing, which is at its end of life, its recommended end of life. Operationally, it provides tools and equipment replacement for our special operations mission and technical rescue support companies. It funds our recruitment and upcoming promotional needs. It funds our effort to market and promote fire safety in our community. And it definitely uh, funds a much needed uh, replacement, critical need of replacing our fire fleet. This concludes my opening remarks. And as I alluded to earlier, there were five questions um, from council prior to uh, my budget presentation that dealt with operations, prevention, logistics, OEM, and I believe fleet. So. Thank you. You're welcome. Council members? Ms. Gray. So um, last year we were all invited, um, and I think Ms. Larson, Ms. Trammell, and I attended a presentation that talked about cancer rates in the fire department and what, um, what a lot of the drivers are, Yes. Um, the gear they wear. I mean, they were simple very, what seemingly is very simple fixes to that. Um, the diesel exhaust from the engines that are in their shared living space, 
um, not having anywhere to, to shower. You know, we have a fire station that has one shower, so mm-hmm. keeping, keeping those carcinogenic chemicals on their skin for any extended period of time increases the cancer rate. So what, what is in this budget that we can say addresses um, many of those things that we know are driving cancer rates among our firefighters? So if I can take a step back, Madam, uh, Madam Councilwoman, the, the biggest driver or the, the, the biggest emphasis that we can have to prevent uh, our firefighters' risk to cancer is the actions that the individual firefighter can take. Specifically, what I mean by that is then after or following a fire, following a fire, we, we come outside and we what call, do what is called decontamination, which is spraying the heavy particulates that are on a firefighter's gear, getting that stuff off. Um, then we also, as we get back to the fire station, we encapsulate the gear so that it is not off-gassing or contaminating the environment now with the, the com- products of combustion that were attached to the gear from the most recent fire. Um, We put out a cancer policy last year, December the 18th of 2018, which provides guidance to that. Um, But we're also uh, preparing to, uh, through grant funding, to purchase, uh, in the early stages of purchasing, uh, what we call, what what is commonly referred to, it's a a washing machine in the, the regular world, but in our world we call them extractors. So that's what we expect to do on the grant funding. But most of the things that we can do as it relates to this is, is, is what the individual can do to lessen that. And I spoke to the physicals would also address. And, and I understand exactly um, the limitations, but as an individual firefighter, I can't go into my station and build out another shower or move the ice machine, per se, that's getting particulate matter it's on the same floor with the diesel engine. So what kinds of um, things? I know if you've ever been to a wedding on a farm, you can go into these trailers that have bathroom facilities and even showers, some of them. So are, are we looking at any stop gaps in the meantime so that our firefighters can be more protected from that? So uh, most recently in a leadership team meeting, we expressed our desire and uh, development of a plan to remove the ice machines. There are a few that are on the apparatus floor to remove those from the apparatus floor to the living space, and we're working with DPW to get that done. Um, there is one fire station that has a shower, that's Station 12, and the CIP does address its replacement in terms of the station but there is also $250,000 in the CIP budget to address those type of things. Okay. Thank you. Ms. Trammell? Thank you, Madam President. Chief, I want to ask you not only about Station 21, but some of the other older stations. Where are we with that? Um, specifically, you mean replacement or repair or? Just, I mean, it's just unacceptable. And I'll just talk about 21. It's unacceptable. Okay. So, yes, ma'am, uh, the CIP does uh, begin to address a strategy, a plan to replace stations 5, 6, 12, 21, and ultimately a new fire headquarters. Um, I'm sorry, what? A, a fire new- headquarters. A, eventually a fire headquarters because we are leasing the building that we're in. Okay, but no disrespect, but I would think that those fire stations should come first, especially with those men and women in there. I think that, you know, we need to look at that 
And I know that 21, I've been, we've been talking about that ever since 1998, and it's gone nowhere. As so, far, I mean, there's been some upgrades and things like that, but still, when you have the women and the men in there, it's not, it's like we're not being fair to those firefighters. So, taking so a there's a plan, uh, Madam Councilwoman, there is a plan that has been developed uh, in conjunction with DPW and other city agencies, inclusive of fire, to replace those stations. Absolutely. I would agree with you. Um, Obviously, 21 and the other stations that are in disrepair didn't occur overnight, but it, it takes a global plan to address it uh, long term. And to continue to put money in those projects, I agree, is not the best use for those funds. But right now, we do have monies to address some of the critical needs, but long term, they are slated for replacement, specifically 21 and others. Chief, do you have that document that can be shared with council that delineates each of those stations and not in this moment? That's in the budget. Wait, can, yes, okay. okay. That can be it's in the CIP, yes. Ma'am. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Chief, I have some other questions, but I will call you personally. Thank you. Okay. I'm sorry, Councilman, what was that? I said I have some other questions, but I will call you personally and speak to you. Thank you. You're welcome. Yes, other questions? Okay, Ms. Gray? I guess a boilerplate, um, not, you know, necessarily to be answered now, but it looks like um, your vacancy funding is down by 16. It's down roughly $850,000 for funded vacancies. Please help me out, Councilwoman. Is that the, you're asking me, is it, or you're saying? I'm asking why um, that's being cut. So our, our vacancy funding reflects uh, our vacancies that existed on um, January the 25th of this year. And <clears throat> thus far for, January, for calendar year uh, 2019, we have lost six vacancies. Well, we've lost six positions uh, through the drop program. They have retired. And we anticipate losing another nine um, by the year's end. And that's known vacancies. However, it's the unknowns that typically affect our overtime and, and the vacancy rate. Right. And so my question, so the, the budget is down from what was approved by about $341,000. So the approved um, number of p vacant positions. Oh, so you're increasing it. Okay. Yes. It's up. But the total is it's shown a percent change of sixteen total. So it's down by fifty three point three percent total. But the funding's going up. Mr. Brown, did you I don't understand comment? Yes, ma'am. Jay Brown, Director of Budget and Strategic Planning. Um, based on this um, council staff analysis, you can look at the last box and from the FY20 approved budget, which was last year, they had 30 vacancies and in the FY20 proposed budget, they are down to only 14 vacancies with funding of 1.2 million in the proposed budget versus 850,000 that was in the approved budget last year. Ms. Gray, did that respond to? 
So the cost went up to fund less positions. Is that what I'm at? If you recall, during the proposed, during the biennial budget last year, there was less vacancy funding in the FY20 approved budget. And so uniformly, when you look citywide in the FY20 proposed budget, there is more vacancy funding citywide. Why? I mean, if, if, we're, if we're reducing the number of vacancies, why is the vacancy funding going up? The fire department has a critical need, um, and I know that they have a lot of attrition and turnover throughout, throughout the year, and this funding would be sufficient to ensure that they had the funding to fill critical sworn firefighter positions. Thank you. Um, are there any other questions? Ms. Reed's look as if you're coming forward for. Lenore Reed, DCAL Finance and Administration. Uh, I'd like to address uh, Councilwoman Gray's mm -hmm. question. Um, what she's asking is why for more positions there were less funding, and now this year, there are less positions and more funding. Um, basically, the answer is there's not a, there was not enough funding in the budget to fill all of the vacancies that was there last year. And so what uh, the fire chief received is a bucket of funding so he could pick and choose which positions he would be able to fill with the bucket of funding that he had instead of freezing positions and not giving him the ability to fill certain critical positions. And so you'll find that a lot. And so now he has fewer positions, which is 14, but we think he has adequate funding to fill those 14 positions. Thank you for that. That makes a lot more sense. Um, I do have issue with how we are budgeting because any other budgets that I've worked on have positions attached to the funding. So you know exactly what's not being funded and what is being funded. And I understand you can transfer. I could, I could have, you know, a position funded that I say, hey, I have a greater need to fund this one that's not funded, and you move the money. But to say I'm going to give you a bucket of money, try to fill as many as you can, um, it doesn't give us a lot of information. So we look at it as, oh, they've, they're sitting on money for vacancies that they don't really intend to, to fill. And it's a way to, to inflate the budget. I mean, that's the perspective from, from this angle. But from your angle, you're saying we want to have enough to fill them all and we just put it in a bucket. But for, it would be very helpful to understand what positions they are. For instance, on school budget, we knew how many teachers and what the, mm -hmm. what the salary range was and benefits. And if we wanted to hire a new teacher, how much we would need to fill, mm -hmm. you know, if it's 10 teacher slots and it's 45 $450,000, we knew exactly what. We might decide, hey, we could hire one counselor for, you know, what it costs to hire these two teachers, but we would have to move that money 
and show that we weren't funding those teacher slots. But here, that's not how it's. It, it, it really, it really is. We, when I say we have a bucket of funding on the back end, on the budget side, we have a listing of all vacant positions. And let's just say, and I'm going to choose fire chief because it's fire and he's standing here. And we'll say fire chief has X number of vacancies. Budget to go in, and for each of them, they'll say, well, we're going to fund this, we're going to fund that. These we're not going to be able to fund because we have budget constraints. And so we'll tell the chief, chief, you have X number of dollars to fill your positions. We know exactly which ones he can fill and he can't. So chief comes back and do a request to recruit. And once he do that request to recruit form, budget takes that form and compares it to what was funded and what was not. And so if it was, let's just say it was a position that wasn't funded, then budget would change from a position that was funded and say, Chief, yes, you can hire because on the back end, now we know you have funding, but it's another position he won't be able to hire for because it's because of the lack of funding. But as, and I, and I, under, I understand your need. Um, for doing that. At the state, we looked at maximum employment levels and we looked as a percentage by agency. Here, it's very confusing to be able to follow exactly what the critical positions are that you know there's certain jobs you can't cut out. But it, it looks like you took positions off the book. Do they ever go away forever? Or they always stay out there and they're just never funded? Because at some point, technology catches up. There may be a position that you want to eliminate. But if it's always done like this, it just would never get funded. But it's still sitting on your book as a vacancy. Do you know what I'm saying? I, I understand exactly what you're saying. And so if there's any specific questions or a need for additional information, we're more than happy to okay. provide that. Okay. okay. And there, there may be, and so I'll ask Megan to follow up with Councilwoman Gray, and um, there may be additional. Chief, thank you uh, for your presentation and certainly Madam for President. your service um, uh, to our city. The next presentation is the Department of Emergency Communications. Good morning. I'm Stephen Willoughby, Director of Emergency Communication. Uh, the City of Richmond's 911 Emergency Communication Center remains the second busiest 911 center in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and our employees continue to deliver excellent emergency communication services every day. For instance, in calendar year 2018, 97.6% of the nearly 260,000 911 calls answered were answered within less than with, answered within 10 seconds, and priority calls were consistently dispatched in 90 seconds or less. In the last year, DEC has implemented Text to 911 service, which not only provides new ways to access emergency service, but also updates the technology used to access 911 for those in our community who are deaf and hard of hearing. We were the, an early adopter of the federal first net, first responder network, being the first city in the Commonwealth to adopt this critical public safety service giving our first responders priority and preemption on cellular network and providing increased broadband for our mobile data used in our police cars and fire trucks. 
the, the pinnacle of our outstanding work performed by DEC will, will be when the Richmond Department of Emergency Communications officially becomes a nationally accredited public safety communications agency when the CALEA Commission meets later this month. This represents three years of commitment to meeting 211 professional standards that are now incorporated into our department's policies, transparency of process, involvement of the public in our public safety processes, and how we operate as an organization as a whole. DC's 20, FY20 proposed budget is fairly straightforward and only has minor, minor change from the biannual budget adopted by this council last year. The principal change to DEC's general fund budget is an increase of $86,722 in personnel services. This is to account for increased expenses for implementation of the Gallagher salary study and adding one additional full-time employee as an alarm administrator. Currently, administration of the false alarm ordinance is outsourced. This concludes my brief summary of the proposed budget for the Department of Emergency Communication. I'm pleased to answer any questions you may have. Thank you, Mr. Willoughby. Council members, are there questions? Ms. Trammell. Yes. Um, Stephen, I, I want to thank you for all of your hard work and all of your employees, all the 911 operators. Um, I just think that, I think you and I had this conversation before. I think maybe, I, I'm not speaking for my colleagues, I'm speaking for myself. I think maybe I would like to have some training or something, like when I called 911, exactly what am I supposed to say, how am I supposed to say it, how am I supposed to be calm when I have something that happens, per se, at my home or whatever. Because um, I, I don't like calling 911 because it's, it's like it brings attention, you know, to more, like, like per se, crime in, in that particular area. And um, just sometimes you just, you have to try to, you have to reach out to someone because you just never know in this day and time. But um, I, I would like to maybe be able to sit down and talk to you or, or someone to see exactly when I call or when I ask or when I have my citizens call, what are we supposed to say, how are we supposed to say it, how are we supposed to answer it so that we don't, so that there's not a disconnect between me and the person on the other end of the phone because sometimes I'm quite sure if I'm upset or whatever, I don't, maybe I'm not clear enough for them to understand exactly that I don't live on H-A-Y-D-E-N, live on the other one, H-A-D-E-N. And also, um, I want to know what I can do to help your, the 911 operators become like with, with the police and a fire so they can get the retirement, they can have, um, the same benefits that police and fire get because to me I don't think it's fair because they are at the top because if you call 911 and nobody answers what happens so I want to see what I can do as far as with the General Assembly or talking to people the governor or whatever to see what we can do to get them and let Richmond Virginia be the first in this in this lead we, we could definitely facilitate some 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 training and some some, some hands-on on on how to how, how to interact with 911 when you when you call and uh, be happy to have some discussions with you regarding retirement. Okay, and then the second part: How can I help, or how can we council help the 911 dispatchers, your staff, all of them, be on the same page with the police and the fire when it comes to retirement? 
or, or benefits or whatever, because I don't feel like they, they are being treated fairly, and I don't feel like that they're getting what they deserve. Because if you call 911, what happens if you don't have enough um, dispatchers to answer the phone or, you know, especially with all the calls of service that you get per day and all the, all the interactions that they have with 215,000 people in the city of Richmond? So I, I think incorporating into the retirement system would require a, a, a lot more vetting. That's not incorporated in this year's budget. Um, I think it deserves some, some, some dialogue. And Jay Brown's getting ready to kick me off the podium. No. <laughs> Mr. Brown. <laughs> Help me out, Jay. Jay Brown again. Um, we support the mayor's budget, and um, I would uh, personally uh, ask that city council consider supporting the Department of Emergency Communications budgets. Um, and as we move forward, we will be looking at other things citywide within the future. Okay, I'm, I know that you, you know, said that I can call you, Jay, and Absolutely. I appreciate that. Absolutely. And I would definitely would like to ask you some more questions Please in do. reference to this. Please, Please do. Yes, ma'am. Please do. Thank you, mm -hmm. and Steve. Thank you again, and thank. Yes, everyone in your department. Ms. Robertson and then Mr. Agilesto. Thank you, Chief. Appreciate the uh, report this morning on what's going on with your department and appreciate all the valuable services that you're providing for the city. I just have one question. We are still getting um, feedback from community that when they call uh, the 911 uh, service that they are being routed to Henrico. And I'm just looking for a way to try to help uh, alleviate that and explain to, to the residents um, what's being done to address that. Currently, we're limited by the technology that is out there. Uh, the state has uh, developed a plan uh, to begin funding what we call Next Generation 911, which does a better job of routing 911 calls. And so we're meeting regularly with our, with our partners, the suburban communities, in uh, how do we implement that in the region and uh, plan to press forward with implementation of Next Generation 911 uh, in the next year or two to, uh, to hopefully begin addressing uh, the technology issue that would allow us to better route 911 calls to the most appropriate 911 center. Okay. Um, yeah, the concern is that when people call 911, they they want instant service. And yes. when it goes to Henrico and be rerouted back to Richmond right. a significant amount of time, especially if there are, you know, of course, emergency issues that are being done. Um, once again, it's, it's, it's a challenge to the technology. Uh, the technology, the core of the technology that 911 works off of today is the same technology it did in the 1960s when 911 came, on, uh, came online. Uh, what Next Generation 911 does is, is uh, brings it into the uh, IP or the uh, or broadband technology that allows us to uh, uh, do more things and make better decisions uh, prior to in the routing of those 911 calls. Uh, we're just not there today. Um, hopefully this time when I'm before you next year, we may be closer. 
And I appreciate that, and I understand um, until we get to that place with the technology. But I would like to be able to provide um, some more definitive direction to uh, to the residents, and maybe maybe we can determine whether or not that is something that is happening in certain sectors of the city versus in general. I don't know uh, if there's a you know any other additional information we can give to folk because. Well, What's and, happening when people call, they just start off and with their emergency uh, situation and maybe having a conversation right. for, you know, a few minutes and then realize that the uh, receiver of the call on the other end is only going to say to them, I'm sorry, this is not Richmond, this is Henrico. Um, and so I just, if we could just think through that process as to anything right. that and, we could and, do better to And, and we continue to enhance our public education efforts that's included in our public education efforts um it's important the first question we answer ask at richmond 911 is is what's the location of your emergency and it's important individuals know where they're where they are at uh so that immediate decisions can be made of this is uh, this is my 911 center it belongs to another 911 center we look at reports on a regular basis of of unfortunately the way the technology is is the sales sector will cover multiple jurisdictions and we look at those numbers of what 911 centers handling the most calls and those that's how the decisions are made of of where where that 911 call is, is routed to. Thank you, Mr. Willoughby. <laughs> uh, Mr. Agilesto. Thank you. And um, in reading through the additional FTE that the department is receiving in the mm -hmm. budget, um, that is to handle the false alarm um, fee uh, program that we have. Do you have an idea of um, kind of what revenues have been received to date uh, for the false alarm fee? Uh, yes. So in FY18, uh, $95,615 uh, was received. Uh, it was ninety-eight thousand eight forty-five and seventeen. Okay. Uh, what what we're what we're doing with that is is uh, so the revenues will cover the expense. Uh, we pay currently. Uh, we have a contract, and uh, forty-five percent of whatever revenue we collect goes to that third-party contractor. We believe bringing that in-house, we can do it for the same same expense. And my goal is is not make this. It's just a false alarm fine program, but make this a false alarm reduction program. Um, in calendar year 18, uh, 18,148 uh, alarms came into our center. <clears throat> Excuse me. Of those, 60% of those were false alarms. Uh, that's tying up resources for, for my agency. It's tying up resources for the police department, for the fire department, depending on what type of call that is. And so we want to take that program to the next level and reduce the number of false alarms that we have out there so that we're not tying up those resources unnecessarily. Thank you. Um, and do the revenues, therefore, go into a special fund directly into your department, or do they go to the general fund? They go to the general fund. So the general fund is then just making the appropriation to cover the staff? Yes. And the position would be to issue the bills, but who's doing the collecting? Well, today it's done by, today it's done by a third party. Correct. Uh, in the future, it would be, it'd be the individual that's responsible for managing that program from stem to stern. Okay. So slightly different than a, 
well, nevertheless, I, it makes sense to me um, to do that. I would just potentially encourage for the funds in their entirety to go towards your department, similar to the way that we did it with uh, animal care and control, that they brought in the billing and collection in-house for uh, pet licenses, and that that went to support their budget and uh, collections had a higher rate um, than had been previous because it was being done for the general fund through centralized locations. So as long as it's being done in-house for both billing and collections, I, I see that as a, a positive, but I would encourage the revenue to also remain there if, if there were other ways to do the reduction. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Willoughby, thank you for your presentation and your service. Thank you. Yes. The next presentation will be the Richmond Sheriff's Office. Welcome, Sheriff Irving. Good morning. Good morning, Madam President, members of council. It's a pleasure to be here. And we, too, support the budget that's been presented for us this year. Um, it looks a, a whole lot better. Uh, our goals with the Sheriff's Office, again, is to make sure that we provide the best possible service that we can to the citizens here in the city of Richmond. Um, that being our uh, security to the courthouses and our uh, upkeep of the jail as well as the uh, services that we provide for the actual inmate population. We have also taken on the responsibility to assist in uh, cleaning our city um, as best we possibly can, and we will make sure that our inmates that are released uh, can reenter into our society as good citizens, also as uh, uh, good family members and able to go back to work and home um, in a full package, we want to make sure that we can provide for them. Uh, we will also make sure that we're providing the best possible mental health services as well as uh, substance abuse and recovery and rehabilitation services that we possibly can. We also want to make sure that our staff members are fully trained and are able to provide these services and provide the best possible security that we can uh, for the um, actual jail facility as well as uh, all court services that we do. We serve over 100,000 civil process papers a year, and we want to make sure that we can continue to do that to the best of our ability, as well as we service over 600,000 people that come in and out of our courthouses um, every year. So we want to make sure that we can do those things to the best of our ability. Um, we've also, uh, some of the goals that we've accomplished this year, we have uh, went out and sought grants to ensure that we can provide the best possible services to our inmates. Uh, we have a $500,000 uh, second chance reentry grant that's going to help us to provide some of those services to our individuals. And we also continue to provide uh, services through our uh, mental health uh, jail pilot program grant that we have. And uh, this year we've also attained a grant for our human resources and uh, training so that we can make sure that we have good recruitment and are able to put out the best possible product for the city of Richmond. And with that being said, uh, any questions? Thank you, Sheriff. Council members, are there questions? Mr. Jones. Yes, ma'am. Thank you, Madam President. Um, Sheriff, I want to thank you for all the work that you do. Um, and, and I'll kind of back into these, these statements. Um, as we do um, at our Southside Community Center, we have a lot of career fairs and different opportunities. Um, and, and again, because it's a Monday and I'm still in the fog uh, from this weekend, is there an opportunity for the sheriff's office to 
get out and recruit in in some of our neighborhoods to let people know about the opportunity to be with the sheriff's department, what uh, those opportunities are, and how they can go about uh, beginning a career uh, in uh, in in the sheriff's office and with the sheriff's office. Because I was I was really really uh, inspired by a lot of the interviews that I did with uh, uh, Richmond leaders, uh, city leaders. Uh, that head departments like yours about what it actually takes to get a job with some of these departments. And so uh, that, that, that's my first question that I'll, I'll give you an opportunity to, uh, to answer. Absolutely. Uh, we do our best to get to all the free uh, job fairs that we can and community events that we possibly can. Um, and we thought that our problem was we can't afford to be in some of the job fairs. We went and sought um, the grants that we did in order to be able to go to some of the other job fairs to make sure that we're getting the best qualified candidates. We um, impact the, compu- the community as much as possible so that we can be seen. Uh, the best way to show people what we do is to actually be a part of the community and, and, and show them our professionalism and have them to be able to ask questions and be a part of what we do. Uh, we have uh, infected ourselves into uh, the different uh, community events just to make sure that we have our job fair uh, information for them. Uh, we are able to provide tours and provide information for individuals that may want to seek a career in law enforcement, but it's on the sheriff's office side, so we want to make sure that they are aware that we do exist and that there are other avenues. One of the things is that you have to be 21. Uh, I know that there have been some other agencies that have hiring problems, so what they've done is reduce the age to 18. I'm not sure that an individual is is at the proper maturity level to be able to be inside of a facility with someone that is incarcerated at the age of 18. I think right now we'll stay at 21, um, but also provide some training for individuals on an intern basis um, from universities and colleges in our, in our local neighborhoods. Uh, but we do try to impact ourselves as much as we, co- much as we can um, and influence the community by what we do and what they see. All right, awesome. Thank uh, you. And, I, and I hope that... Uh, at all the career fairs that take place uh, in the South Side that you would not be charged. Uh, And I'll just, I don't believe you are, but I'll make sure uh, that that isn't the case. And if uh, uh, our CAO, Madam CAO, could assist in getting that information. But I think as much information that we can get out, especially as individuals are looking for jobs, and and not just a a job, but a career, um, something they can sink their teeth into, and move forward and really remove the, 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 the stigma uh, of working for uh, the sheriff's department uh, is key. My next question, uh, several of my constituents, one of our major challenges um, are, are clean streets and clean neighborhoods. One of the key indicators for uh, success in schools uh, are safe and clean neighborhoods. And on the south side, especially in the ninth district, we are having uh, a serious challenge uh, in that. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you mentioned uh, your weekend details. Can, can you talk a, a little bit about that, uh, what some of your challenges are right now, what things we can do to um, uh, kind of assist to make sure that this happens on a regular basis? Um, and I'll stop and allow you to okay. I will take one step back. We're not charged in the city. Uh, for any of the job fairs or career fairs that we go to. It's when we want to go out to other places or to different business um, type uh, job fairs. We do have to, there's a $400, $500 fee just to be there for a couple of hours or so. 
It's, it's not really so much in our um, local community. Awesome. So that's not that's not happening. Um, as far as our helping to keep the neighborhoods and streets clean, uh, we've been doing that for a while um, with the help of uh, Ms. Tramble. She's helped us before with our being able to transport. You've come along, and now you've helped us, and the council has helped us to attain uh, more vehicles from our fleet in order to make sure that we can have our inmates out working. We've spoken to the judges, and the judges also want our community service people working as well as those individuals that are on weekends. I talked about it last year, saying that that's what our goal was going to be. We actually have put it in place now. We had uh, three crews out last weekend um, and three crews out the weekend before to make sure that we could hit several different areas um, during the weekend. They'll be working at least six hours on Saturdays and six hours on Sundays to go out and clean up. Um, DPW has done a great job of coming behind us and making sure that we actually bag up and pick up the trash so that you don't see it on Monday morning when you're on your way to work. Um, so we're, we're intentionally working to make sure that we keep our cities clean. Um, our streets, again, are an indication of who we are, unfortunately. Um, our kids have to be in safe neighborhoods, and if it's clean, it makes you feel that you are doing the right thing and that you're a part of a community that's trying to make sure that you are safe. Um, so that's, that's our goal and our target. So we appreciate the assistance that we've gotten in the past and all the assistance that we will receive in the future to make sure that we can provide transportation as well as other safety items to make sure that the inmates are out um, cleaning uh, and doing the things they need to do to also help within the city because they feel a part of what's going on in the city when they do those type of things. Do, do, Thank you you. Have, do you have enough vans? What can we do on the council side to ensure that you do? Because I assume um, the, the, the cost of, uh, especially the cost per hour, uh, to go out and get uh, the litter picked up has got to be more cost effective. It's got to be pretty cost effective versus sending out city employees and things of that nature. Do you do you have the vans? Do you have access to them? Because my office, we've talked with Calvin Chambers, uh, 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 fleet operations manager for DPW. What what else do we need to do from that standpoint? Uh, to get more vehicles or make sure you consistently have the vehicles that you need? Well, right now, the vehicles that we have, we have three vehicles right now. Um, and, of course, I always want to ask for more. But we want to have to be able to make sure that we have the staff to also be available to provide the proper security because we don't want any citizens to feel that they're unsafe by having individuals out um, in the community cleaning up. Um, so right now it's just a matter of... Um, having the proper staff to be out with those individuals and making sure that the judges, um, as you heard Mr. Heron say earlier, that some of those programs that they have have less people. But since we've talked to the judges and we'll continue to have those conversations with them, they're going to put more people on um, community service as well as more people on, on weekends to be able to have the, um, the, the labor there to get the work done. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Chair. Other questions? Mr. Adjolesta, Ms. Gray. Sorry, and Ms. Robertson. Thank you, Sheriff Irving. Um, a couple of questions. Uh, the medical contract. Yes. This is not the first year that um, the budget did not fully fund the medical contract. When you go to contracting for medical services, I guess the question that I'm trying to get at is how do we continue to see this recur where we are not fully funding a contractual obligation. So what's, what's the process and where's the breakdown in terms of what we have budgeted and where the shortfalls are? 
Uh, that's a good question. Um, the one reason that we had to ask for more in this last contract is, I don't know if you all remember, but I knew that contract was going down the tube when we got there because it was very low budgeted. Um, it went through, and we seem to have a lot of individuals that have high costs. Um, and if we don't add those numbers in when you're looking or seeking to, to, to get a contract, then that's going to be a problem. Right now, we have an all-inclusive contract, and if it was not all-inclusive, the contract that we currently have, we wouldn't afford, wouldn't be able to afford. We've probably, the company has spent almost $3 million um, in medical care that we're not having to pay because it is an all-inclusive contract, meaning that that $8 million contract that we have uh, would be even more. Um, so going forward, um, we can look to see an increase in that type of a contract just to make sure that we can take care of the individuals that, that we have. We have 20 inmates that create a, a large amount um, of funding problems. And then we have uh, medication issues and those types of things because we have a lot of chronic illnesses and age um, issues that we have as far as our medical contract goes. And I think Mr. Brown has a comment. Yes. Jay Brown again, and if I may, Councilman Agilesto, um, we, we did fully fund uh, the contractual obligations within the Sheriff's Office, and I believe that the Sheriff just indicated um, the issue this fiscal year with why there were some adjustments. But we fully funded the contracts in FY19, and the intention is in FY20 as well. Thank you. Um, qu quick Mr. Agilesto. follow When I hear fully funded, but there's, my understanding is that there was a shortfall in the funding this current fiscal year and that there's having to be a budget amendment that hasn't been introduced yet. Yep. That was because of the previous contract was at $6 million. Okay. And the new contract when we, the other company and us parted our sure. ways. And, and it goes back to my question, which is how can we issue a contract that is not appropriately budgeted? I don't know how a department can get approval for a contract that they don't actually have the appropriation for without the council making the appropriation prior to signing the contract. I understand that, Councilman Agilesto, but again, um, I just want you to know that it was fully funded based on the cost at the time, and there were some adjustments made by the sheriffs, which um, resulted in that contract going up in this current fiscal year. Right. Mr. Brown, and this is not in your budget realm this is more about finance procurement you know and who signs off saying you got sufficient funds because we got a policy that says if you don't have sufficient funds you can't do it you can't buy something it's so my my issue is how do we then sign a contract that is not fully funded and then they say well we're going to come back to council to fully fund it well we haven't seen any uh, budget amendment so well, mr agilesto i would um state that what we did was we rearranged some funding to Got ensure it. that we would be able to have a contract because we could not go without one. And we right. had to be able to provide medical services to the residents that we have in the population. And we had to make sure we had that. So we took and squeezed monies from wherever else we had it and sacrificed not having other things to ensure that we had a medical contract to make sure that the inmates could get the proper care. Okay. Because that's Understood. important. Life, health, and safety is very important. Absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate that response more so. We can't hear you if you would slide over. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh -huh. The current contract that we're in started 7-1. So, oh, I'm sorry, Dana Powell. Uh, 
We start at 7-1, and we fully – it goes for two years sure. because it was an emergency, okay. and it covers everything Thank as you. far as uh, the inmates go. Thank you. And, and then, uh, um, Sheriff Urban, this was my second well, question. Mr. Angelesta, though, I think it's Ms. Burrell. Burrell. Were you going to speak okay. to this particular issue that Councilman Angelesta raised? Yes, please. Okay. Good morning, Betty Burrell, Director of Procurement Services. Um, in, to address your concerns – you all invested in 2014 a system that does not allow a contract to be issued if there are not budgetary dollars available. It does not require human intervention. The system simply will not allow a contract to be entered into for which we do not have sufficient funding. But we also have human intervention as well to look at those contracts. So no worries with respect to entering into a contract for which we don't have budgetary authority. Ms. Dagelesto? Maybe I'll, I'll speak with Ms. Burrell a little bit closer about what safeguards are there. Um, but I appreciate that. Uh, Ms. Ir- uh, back to Sheriff Irving, if I may. Um, int- you had mentioned there are about 20 inmates that have uh, driven up the health care cost. Are any of those um, DOC inmates? And I ask this question because you and I have had conversations in the past about DOC continuing to um, not take full responsibility for their inmates but leaving them at the city jail and providing a reimbursement rate that is significantly lower. And if we're being burdened with potentially higher medical inmates, I would think that they're the type that we should really push back first on. And I knew you were going to ask that question. (laughs) One, because... Um, the, the cost hasn't changed. They still pay us $12 a day. $12 a day. Um, what does happen is they are a DOC inmate. We do get funding for uh, reimbursements for their expenses. We just have to make sure that we have all of their billing and we send it to DOC and they give us medical reimbursement for whatever those services were. Um, and once we find out that that inmate is going to create um, some type of financial burden, we have that conversation with DOC to try to get them transferred to their medical site as soon as possible to ensure that that cost won't be left back on us. Okay. As long as you all are tracking that um, and, and sending the invoices, that's appropriate, I, I gather. And what percentage of the daily inmate population are DOC? We have approximately 200 inmates, uh, two to 285 inmates a day that could be DOC inmates. And that's more than 20%? Yes. Okay. Um, Anything that we can do from the council side to address either the reimbursement rate or uh, the, the real need for DOC to take full authority for their uh, inmates? Uh, any conversations that you can have legislatively to make that move into a different direction, we would greatly appreciate it. And are you aware of any other jurisdictions that have equal burden of like a 20% or greater, the city of Norfolk or any others that you might be aware of? We're all having a problem um, having our DOC inmates moved, and the payments are still $12. If and they're a- shutting down state jails and therefore relying more on the localities. Um, yes. Okay. And what is that? What is the actual cost uh, per inmate per day for the city? The actual cost is approximately $115. $115. So we're subsidizing DOC $100 a day per inmate? Yes, to okay. include the use of the facility. Great. Thank you very okay. much. Thank you.
uh, Miss Gray and then Miss Robertson. So, um, a couple of, couple of questions around overtime. I know there were some overages, and um, I wanted to know what in the budget is addressing that. I know you're um, trying to fill those vacant positions, but um, in the in my notes here, it's saying that you're using. Um, bulk of this money for um, compression pay issues and I understand the need to get the compression pay addressed but if, if overtime costs are running I think the last quarterly report it was three and a half million or so over how can we how can we tackle that and do the compression pay well one of the things that we are, we're looking at one um, we fortunately decreased that $3.2 million uh, by a large amount by the time the end of the year would be. Um, but the, the one reason that we are talking about compression pay, and, and we can look at it as retention and hiring, if we don't get to the point of paying people, we will be losing even more. Um, as you noted, last year we had this conversation about how many vacancies we had, and we had approximately, uh, I think it was 82. Uh, as of today, we're back up to 79 or no 70 70 we're back up to 70 um, prior to July of last year we had gotten down in the 40s once everybody around us got a raise our numbers went back up we are not competitive in pay in the city of Richmond and I think everyone has gone through that um, we're paying people 11% less than every other jurisdiction around us we will continue to lose folks so our goal is to make sure that we are competitive. Um, if we have to do it in compression, we'll do it in compression. If we have to do it in the means to make sure that we can afford to hire people, we will do that. The, the thing about hiring and retention, we have to be able to do that or else we're going to continue to increase our numbers in overtime as well as burn our people out because they're not going to be fit for duty because they're working too much. Okay. Um, the, the other increase that I see that's pretty out of line with the others are um, the jail administration is up roughly 37% or $1.5 Can you tell me a little bit about what that increase is due to? And that includes salaries. Salaries for, so for current folks? That would be the salaries that we current for the people that we currently have. Yes. So we're bumping people up on an average of more than thirty percent. No, no way. It's the amount of people that we have working in our administration, which could include all of our, you know, our uh, ranking staff and and people that are working in our records department, our classification department. That's that's actually um, sworn and civilian staff members. It's, so, it's the way they have those numbers budgeted, as far as where everybody fall in. They chop the different categories down as to who's working in which areas as to which funding will go into where. So the 37% is for current staffed and funded positions, or is it to hire more people? Yeah, for the, the positions that were filled from last year, because we're also using some part-time positions to help fill some of those positions that we had last year in those areas. So okay. I guess a org chart with a breakdown of any new positions from prior to, to now and what the the range is for those or whether or not they're filled or if this to provide it for you. or the goal of this is to to fund those. 
I did get a question while we were sitting here because overtime has been such an issue, and the question is that there are so many brown suits here right now, and that equates to to dollars. Um, so, and I think it's a fair question, but I don't want to put you on the spot. But the question is, why are there so many brown uniforms here at this particular? budget session right now this is our command staff um, our command staff needs to know how to do this and how to be able to communicate with city council this is a means of helping them to learn how to, to deal with UOS council and understand the questions that that you all have as well as to be able to provide information um, for you all relating to our, our particular organization um, did they have to be here no but this is a good sign of unity Yes, it is, um, because they're in support of our budget and want to make sure that they understand what needs to be done in order to speak towards a budget. And, and, I, and I appreciate and understand that. I just think it's a balance between um, the overtime stuff. And I know that maybe their positions are different, may not be dealing with the uh, – if they're command, they're probably not hourly, but if they're – if there are needs, staffing needs that are being addressed with overtime, could could we potentially be costing folks more just by the, you know, appearances do mean something. So I'm just putting it out there because yeah. it is a question. I absolutely, that's, that's a good question. But uh, our command staff works 24/7. You'll see them on a Saturday. You'll see them on a Sunday, and they're getting paid the same regardless of when they're working. They're always present to make sure that we are well represented in this city, just like they're represented here on Sundays. If you see them, they're not getting paid. We work their schedules to make sure even they don't even get comp time or compensated anyway in order to be a part of what we're doing here in this city because of the commitment that they have to make sure that this city is the best possible city that it can be. Thank you. Duly noted. Um, and Ms. Robertson and then Ms. Larson. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Madam Sheriff, um, for the work that you're doing and your team. And I will be one of the first to say there are very few places, and I don't go all places in the city, that are community-related and are involving different aspects of the community um, in our efforts to address the multitude of services and needs of the city, that you are not personally there and that the representation of your team is not supported as well as being there. And a lot of the work that we have been uh, doing in the city to clean up the streets and uh, engage your department, uh, you know, um, you've been very helpful and and been willing to work with us collectively to try to address those things from multifacets. And so I want to express my appreciation uh, for the work that I see that you're doing as well as um, I'm sure the entire city council does as, as well as the administration. Thank you. Um, Mr. Al asked a lot of the questions that I had in regards to the health care. I know that uh, there, um, there was a plan for a different way of how we would take care of some of the medical needs in-house. Uh, 
I'm interested in knowing whether or not that has proven to be beneficial for you uh, and whether or not you feel that that is contributing to our efforts to control the health care, medical care costs. I think it has been beneficial because there are a lot of times that we don't have to send people out because we do have the doctor there and we have the facility that we can maintain constant observation on individuals and provide them with the treatment that they're needed. It, it comes when more of um, our chronic care individuals uh, become ill, even more ill than they already are. Then we have to send them out just to make sure that um, their, their, their um, immediate medical is being taken care of so that it doesn't influence anything that may be fatal. Okay, um, and the other question I have, I'm not really sure if I have clarity as to uh, health care benefits that once a person is incarcerated, uh, the Medicare, Medicaid benefits are terminated during the time that they are incarcerated. Is that true? And if it is, I would assume that's federal law, and changing it will probably be a huge challenge to take on. But, you know, if those benefits are available to your inmates and they are discontinued just because they are incarcerated, whether or not you think that's something that we should try to encourage looking at differently. If we could have those benefits to remain with them once they're incarcerated, that would be great. One of the things that is happening now um, as of July is those inmates that are in, in, incarcerated that need medical care and they're in the facility for more than 24 hours, they can do the process of Medicaid there and Medicaid will assist with that. But those individuals that don't happen to go to the hospital, then they don't have the Medicaid, and, and either us or our provider would have to pay for that medical care. Okay, and then one last question. Um, your average daily inmate counts, how are they running? They have actually decreased. Um, our, our population this morning um, was 719. Um, we're averaging um, anywhere from uh, 700 to just over 800 uh, to include our inside population. And then when our weekenders and our uh, community service people come in, we have to do that. The numbers have decreased, and I think that has a lot to do with the court system as far as putting them in other diversion programs to ensure that they're not there. Uh, we still do have a problem with the recidivism rate. Um, to ensure that we can do things to assist them with not coming back. Um, that's one of the reasons we went out and sought the um, Second Chance Grant to make sure that we're providing them with the tools and resources necessary so that they just don't get out of jail mm -hmm. and not have, have anything to build on to get out and, and stay in, and sustain themselves when they're out. We want to make sure that they are job ready, so making sure that they can understand the things they need to do um, to be a good employee, um, if not even to be an employer. So we want to make sure that we are building those things around them while they're here and helping them to reintegrate themselves back into the community. Okay. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Sheriff. Ms. Larson. Thank you. Um, some of the folks here have asked some of the questions that I'm looking at, but um, it would be helpful to have more details on the staff, the staffing changes you're going to make, as well as looking long term. Because if we're talking about 
retaining folks, and you mentioned that the other localities pay 11% or more in salaries. Just want to know what your strategy is for addressing that long term. Um, maybe this budget that's in front of us now is supposed to address it for those 12 months, but I'd like to make sure that you all are looking several years out at this. Um, were you part of the salary study that the administration did? No. I've only been here for a year, over oh, 16 months. This, this. I mean, can someone from the administration, I, I can't see heads, but was the sheriff's department personnel looked at in the citywide salary study? Okay, so well, is Ms. Reed coming forward? We're not sure that any of the constitutional officers were a part of that particular okay. study. Yeah, but I don't know. I'm I can find sure that answer either. for you. Yeah. Um, but as far as to answer your question is to, the main thing is hiring and retention uh -huh. to be able to hire qualified people and be able to keep them uh -huh. um, and to train them. Um, I've, I've focused more on training to ensure that our staff members are properly trained and to make sure that the training they receive is good training, mm -hmm. um, good quality training. But we don't want to continue to train people and they go to other agencies for more money. Right. And, and that creates an issue if we continue to train them because we've added more to our training. We've added the CIT, the mental uh -huh. health first aid. We've added um, therapeutic training. We've added all a lot of different training that's going to make sure that we have the proper officers in place. It's just we have to be able to pay people to stay here. Right. Because when we go to job fairs, um, right now our problem is we're sitting at tables beside other people, and when they come to our table, we're making 35. When they go to two tables down, they're making 40 and 42. So that creates a problem for us. Right. I get that. And we hear that from fire and police as well. Ms. Reed? Uh, yes, ma'am. Lenore Reed, DCAO Finance and Administration. I know with 100% certainty that the Gallagher study covered public safety. I believe the sheriff's office was included in that. However, we received salary information from the compensation board in which the sheriff's office is paid through the state and reimbursed by the city and supplemented by the city. I believe the Gallagher study actually reviewed that compensation to make sure it was comparable to the other agencies and like services that are provided. But I will definitely give you an answer directly, yes or no, uh, when I get that information from HR. Okay. Thank you. So, Ms. Larson. Um, when you look and figure out the level of detail, can you also make sure the sheriff's department is included? Because this might help them plan for the future if this analysis has been done, but they're not aware of, of that. Absolutely. Okay. Um, and then... Um, Sheriff, I do appreciate, I feel like you have uh, been proactive in reaching out, and, and I appreciate that. And your, one of your uh, folks was at my district meeting on Thursday night, came up to me and talked to me about the, the litter pickup program. So I'm going to be contacting him about that. Um, with some of these budget things that have happened, we do have a policy in place where if money's moved from a certain bucket to another bucket, that a budget transfer come before council. All of this was decided before you were in this seat. Um, and I think the buckets for the sheriffs are, 
are pretty large. However, I think when you all are moving money that is large amounts, especially with the the overtime that was out in the paper, it would be great if you could um, reach out to us because we've we've had conversations at a couple of our meetings where it's come up, and I know you don't attend all of our meetings, and that would be really difficult for you to do. But um, it, it's tough because of the the structure, and that we don't see you as much as we do the finance people from from the administration. But I would just suggest if if you're making some sort of budgetary change that is significant, that you send us a memo, or maybe come to one of the public safety meetings or or something like that. Well, I will say this um, in respect to your your comment. We don't move any money that the city don't know about. Whether you guys know about it, I can't say, but I don't move anything that somebody else doesn't know about. My mama taught me that real early in life, that you don't play with other people's money. Okay? Um, But we have ensured and had conversations with um, budget and finance to make sure that all money is just moved for anything. And we had to move those funds in order to be able to have that medical contract. If not, maybe I would have ended up being the real doctor because there's no way that we could have provided a service uh, for those inmates if we did not have the proper medical contract. Um, and, and as far as the public safety meeting, we will be attending that meetings as in all the other meetings that we attend. Um, but we have no problem being transparent, none whatsoever. Okay. Well, maybe there's some sort of process where um, our chief of staff could get copied on emails where there are big budget not items. Not a problem moved. for me. Okay. That's I like great. writing people. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'd like everybody to know what's going on at the sheriff's office because there's been problems with transparency in the past, and I vowed that we would not have that problem now. Okay. I, I appreciate Ken? that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And if I Mr. may Brown. add, um, no money has been moved um, unless it goes before city council amongst the cost centers. And so everything that has been done has been in accordance with city council's policies. Thank you. Ms. Trammell. Ms. Before she goes, I believe that all that money was in the same cost center. Maybe why you didn't hear about it, because it all was in the same cost center. Okay. And we sacrificed the jail management system to make sure that we had good medical care. Right. Sure, I don't fully understand exactly what just took place, per se, because um, I don't think that the sheriff would, would have taken that money without it going through the proper channels. And I think it is the administration that has did this to council, especially when we voted for the... But, Sheriff, I'm not putting you on the spot because I believe what you just said. I believe you. Ms. Coffey-Glenn. Selena Coffey-Glenn, yes. Chief Thank Administrative you. Officer. I think Jay's been very clear about the process as it relates to moving monies. We follow council's protocol, so no, I disagree with that comment. So the cl- point well, of I don't want the sheriff the, to be blamed for the point of president. Cl- yeah, I'm just going back to your point to make sure that it's being spoken to. And if I understood from Mr. Brown, nothing, wherever you are, Mr. Brown, if you would go back to Councilwoman Trammell and the point that was made that, in terms of the movement and what transpired there. What is, what is the question again? Okay, Councilwoman Trammell 
And then before, the question about the movement of dollars and that being reported, and Mr. Brown responded to that, so I was just asking him to again repeat, really to repeat that into if there's any additional clarification uh, desired from Councilwoman Trammell to provide that. Yes, ma'am. Councilwoman Tremor, we do follow all protocol as relates to the requirement to transfer money. And that has been followed in every case. So the sheriff doesn't have her money then? He's responded to the question. I'm sorry, what? Ms. Trammell, could you ask again what you just said, please? I'll, I'll call the sheriff. I'll talk to the sheriff. Sheriff, I just want to say thank you and thank you. Um, for your deputies, for all your hard work. And also, I just had one question about, you were talking about when, you, when you're out in the community and you pick up, um, thank you, Jay. When you're out in the community and you're out there picking up, like, in different areas, I was wondering if you keep track of how much you pick up, like, per se, in each district. They had not been, but I have asked that to um, happen within the last couple of weeks to make sure that we're keeping up with that. We can get with DPW. They are probably keeping track of more of the trash pickup than we are. But we will be doing that. We are doing that going forward. So you would do like, like say, I'll use my district, like say in the 8th district, you would do like, say, the Davie Gardens area, Jefferson Davis, Broad Rock, and you would have a, a, like, a like an account of how much you're picking up per se in different areas that we give you. Yes, we're looking at doing by districts within you all's district, the different zones in your district, as well as how many hours we spend and um, how many people we're using and how much um, garbage or whatever it is that we're collecting. And we're going to do that on a, a monthly report. And we can send it to each of you all's areas so that you all know where we were and how much we cleaned up. That's, I'd like to have that. And also, I was going to ask you, because um, I'm quite sure Bobby Vinson with Public Works helps you, and then also if um, the police department partnerships with like um, like helping you with some of the um, areas that you go in? Do they give you, like, because I know a lot of people talk to the police department about different things, about, you know, the trash or whatever, and people think that the police department does that. It's the sheriff's office that goes out there with um, your inmates, and you all pick up the stuff. You You're saying, are they helping us with uh, providing? Like giving you information, like I know that, like I've seen some reports, they give it to the police department, like this tires need to be picked up, um, things like that. We've been getting different reports from um, citizens or council people or um, different leadership in the city. We're trying to make sure that we are partnered with everyone in the city. Um, if they have needs or things that have come up, we've tried to be um, um, very aggressive in helping them to get those things done. Thank you, Sheriff. I have, other, I have a couple other questions dealing with the code enforcement with that part and with Monica that helps me, well, she helps all of us over there um, in Second Precinct. So, but anyway, I'll call you and ask you a couple other questions. But thank you for your hard work and thank all your deputies for all that they do. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, Sheriff, thank you. I want to come back to the question, that, and Ms. Gray, I'll come right back to you. The question was being raised about the cost centers and what gets brought back to council. Ms. Brown, if you would just uh, comment uh, relative to that, just to, based on our policy and what's agreed to and that this has been compliant, basically. Um, yes, so the um, sheriff's budget is adopted by cost center. Any department um, can move money within a cost center. 
without coming having without having to come back to council. However, if they move money from one cost center to another, that requires this a budget amendment to come before council. The um, sheriff indicated that they were able to allocate reallocate money within the same cost center. So no money was taken from them. No money was moved from one cost center to another and wasn't going against council policy. It was still within council policy. It's just that they reallocated money within the same cost center, which is okay under council's policies and rules. But she just says she doesn't have the money. She didn't get the money. So how is it being moved? I have to defer to the sheriff, but I believe she indicated that the money, they do have the money, and that's what they use to do the medical contract. And so if you can provide additional clarification, because you needed more dollars, and so you pulled that from within, if you could provide that so we can get that to all council members. Uh, so it, with that, uh, Ms. Gray? Yeah, to? Yeah, and, and I, what I understand is that uh, Sheriff Irving had to give up doing uh, system management, inmate management uh, software program in order to cover the medical expenditures. And, you know, I'll, I'll go back into the budget presentations, but if that was presented to the council as something that we were funding, well, it's our expectation that we funded that to move monies and not do something that we expected to be funded to something that was over, I do believe is part of the problem where council is not being informed. And that is why we're starting to lock in on monies because we expect that the things that we're told will be done are in fact being done. And we don't like waiting a year or with a quarterly report to learn, you know, that a budget is running over and, you know, things that we expected to be done aren't being done because okay. we're being kept in the dark. And, again, that goes to the transparency matter. Um, but I'll and go back so and, and look. having the report back so that we can have the information is what you're... That would be correct. Okay. <clears throat> you know, it, 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 the analogy is, sure, Mom, I'm going to go buy my textbooks for school, but instead I went and bought comic books. It's still the book line item, but I didn't buy my school textbooks. I went and got something I'd rather do. You know, and that's a problem that we need to resolve. Duly noted. Uh, Ms. Gray, if you would. Um, well, I would agree with every part except comic books. I think that what they moved it for is critical and, and oh, yeah. much needed. Um, and I, I do think even if it's not a requirement by law, it is important to report what's happening with your um, respective agency. And I do appreciate all the hard work you do, and I see your folks out in the community, so I don't want you to leave here thinking I'm beating up on the sheriff's department. Um, however, I do have a couple of questions that maybe um, we can get answered at a later time, and that is around... Um, if you did not use the salary compression study that was conducted, what data was used to come up with these um, decompressions, the salary decompressions that are being proposed? And when we did it for schools and police and fire, we didn't do it all in one lump. We phased it. I think schools we, we phased over three years, um, police and fire two to three years, I think, for those salaries. Is this a one-lump thing, and you don't have to answer right now. Um, just 
putting that in the hopper for questions that we might be able to get responses to. Okay. We'll be more than happy to get it to you, but what we did do is go to all of our surrounding areas and do a comparative study of what what we were making in response to what they were making to to just look at how we need what we need to do to get to be more competitive and over time how can we get there. So is that all in a report that could be submitted? That you could share. Sure, I'll I'll make sure that you get that. Thank you. And I'll be more than happy whenever we change or spin or whatever we do, I'll be more than happy to send that to you as well. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Sheriff, thank you so much. I have a few questions, but I'm going to direct them to staff, especially around the uh, medical costs and whether or not we're looking to partner with, we have federally qualified health centers that has multiple locations. We have in ways that allow us to get the cost down, but I'll direct those uh, to Megan to be in touch with you as well as what we can do to follow up for um, health coverage that might defer the cost and talking to DLC. I want to say thank you for um, your work throughout community. I think I see you at just about every event I'm at and uh, your staff and really appreciate the support and look forward to our continued work together. Thank, Thank you, you so much. And I appreciate you all support as well. Thank you. Thank you. Council members, we have concluded our uh, presentations. I have a question for you. If you would like, we have uh, two amendment items to discuss for follow-up. If you'd like, we could take a brief break and then come back and disperse with those items, and then we would not have uh, to do the 4 to 5 p.m. session, if that is your pleasure. Okay, so we will return at about, what, 10 after work? What was that, Ms. Graham? 15 after? Okay, if we could return to 12.15 from break and then um, address the two items that we brought forward. Thank you, everyone. Council members, if you would rejoin me so that we can uh, get our budget session underway on the dais. I know there are some who are coming forward from the rear. Madam Clerk, I suspect we can dispense with the reading of the... That is correct. Thank you so much. All right, Ms. Brown. Yes, uh, at 
the last budget work session, there were two amendments that council wished to defer until today. That is item number four and five on your amendment sheets. The first one is an amendment by Ms. Gray and Ms. Larson to increase the chief of staff budget by 200000 for an efficiency study. And I believe council wanted to get some additional information from our city auditor as well as the administration on the possibility of doing such a study. So um, I, I know that I have council members who are joining us, so why don't we go to number five first. Number five is to is an amendment by Ms. Gray to increase the auditor's budget by 60000 to fully fund um, the two vacant positions that are in that office's budget. I guess it's good afternoon at this point in time. Good afternoon. Uh, there was about $140,000, I believe, loaded in the budget for those two positions Ms. Gray mentioned uh, uh, last time in terms of how much would it really cost all in with benefits and, and whatnot. I do believe it's going to cost more than one hundred and forty, and that's where the $60,000 came from. What this would get you is uh, full staffing of the the audit department, the city auditor's office, it would enable us uh, to do additional audits uh, that presently we're not able to get to based on our risk-based risk audit plan. Any questions, council members? So, and, and, and Matt, Madam President, yes, are, are we not talking or taking... These were the only two items that we were addressing today. Right. We uh, pushed up. Yes. My my question is: Are we handling this discussion in the same block as far as the two hundred thousand and sixty thousand, or just each individually? Um, We're starting. We. I'm sure there'll be some overlap, but we were just. I was waiting um, until. the two co-patrons had joined, but we could okay. at least get started with Mr. Lassiter while he was here. And so um, any questions for Mr. Lassiter? And so, yes, they will overlap, and so you'll be able to okay. raise questions. I'm right. sorry. So as, I get, as we get, get into that conversation, correct. I'll address it. All right, thank you. Thank you. Ms. Gray, any comment? Just that um, in our budget documents you'll see where – the recommendations, and I think that um, we can all agree that things are running smoothly with the audit department and um, collaboration with the administration. There's a good working relationship from what I can see. Yes, ma'am. And um, recommendations are being agreed upon and adopted and changes are being made that are moving us in the right direction. Yes, ma'am. So with that, having an opening um, and a need to fully staff that, that department, and our documents that shows about a million dollars, roughly 900 plus thousand that you've identified in savings, which more than pays for. Right. We, we've set, and we can get into this a little bit more because it does relate to the other thing, but... We have in our performance-based budget to identify a million dollars of cost savings each year. Uh, last year, uh, we reported to the council $960,000 uh, 
worth of those efforts. Some of those are one-time, and others are recurring matters that, if they're identified and fixed, um, identify cost savings for the, the city as part of our uh, normal audit processes that we do each year. So this is more of a stitch in time, saves nine, and I think that having that department fully staffed will help us along the way. Any other questions or comments for Mr. Lassiter? Relative to uh, item number five, the 60000 to increase the city auditor personnel budget, and it's uh, not really to fund two vacant, but it is just the, one, the difference for the one position. Um, do we have uh, consensus in terms of moving this item forward? I could see some indication of. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Lassiter. But don't leave because I think you're a part of the next discussion. Uh, is our? I can't tell if our CAO is on the other. Okay, that chair was blocking. Ms. Coffey Glenn. And so um, at our last uh, discussion, and I'll see if Ms. Gray and Ms. Larson want to any comment first, but our last uh, meeting where this came up, we asked that uh, Ms. Coffey Glenn and uh, Ms. Lassiter would go and have conversation and come back and provide us with benefit of their recommendations, thoughts, et cetera, in this matter. Did you have any comment you want to make before we go to them? Seeing none. So, so we did meet last week along with uh, Ms. Reed and the budget director. And first of all, I wanted to discuss again, as regular part of our audits that we do, we're constantly looking for, for cost savings and efficiencies. There's other things, obviously, compliance, fraud prevention and detection. Uh, so it is, it is what we do. It's in our DNA. Uh, with that, we did identify $960,000 last year in FY18, and I anticipate that we'll be able to meet or exceed our performance goal of a million dollars this year. Uh, the beauty of those things is also in our DNA is to follow up with the administration and, and, and see those things through to, uh, to productive closure and, and addressing of those issues. Uh, with that said, we discussed uh, that we would be willing, and the audit department, to work as it would have to be what is called uh, in our profession a non-audit service to work with the budget department and partner uh, and designate some of our, our audit hours in FY20 um, towards such an effort should the council so choose. Uh, and if council so chooses that they wanted to hire uh, an independent uh, outside consultant to do such, the, we would be supportive of that effort um, as well. But we discussed that we would be willing to work collaboratively with the council, I mean, with the administration towards that effort if, if that's the path that, that, that the council so chooses. So okay. I don't know if you have anything Ms. to Cuffey add Glenn. to that. Madam President, Selena Cuffey Glenn, Chief Administrative Officer. And I do want to um, thank the auditor for taking time per your request to sit down so we could truly understand exactly uh, what you're trying to accomplish. And one of the things that um, Mr. Lasseter has been very clear about, and I think his office really reflects an instrument of collaborative efforts between the administration, between the council, and, of course, uh, his mission, 
as it relates to the functions, uh, that we work now together as it relates to identifying efficiencies. We've been doing it for a long time uh, as it relates to what each department can do, has contributed as it relates to being effective in the delivery of services, but the efficiencies that we've been able to uh, enumerate. Uh, one of the things that uh, Mr. Lasseter indicated is that he's willing, I'm willing, and our staff to sit down and we don't see a need for any additional costs at this point in time unless there's something more direct that is being ascertained through uh, a third-party vendor coming on board. Uh, but he's willing to make the commitment. I'm willing to make the commitment. The mayor's made it very clear this is a mission uh, that he's certainly strived to accomplish since his tenure. How do we become an efficient organization? Uh, we want to be good stewards. Uh, I think one of the things that I've seen uh, in an auditor um, office is us really having good conversation. Uh, being able to meet regularly to discuss issues or concerns. But the goal is to be a good steward of the public resources, not only financial resources, but also the manpower that we need as it relates to providing exceptional services to the citizens of this community. Certainly we're not perfect, but I think there's been tremendous progress, enormous progress, as it relates to our working as partners uh, in this effort to provide good service uh, to the community that we both serve. Thank you. Questions? Ms. Gray. Any question? I do before you said comment, not question, right? Comment about the legislation since it's Ms. Larson and I who okay. are proposing this as a, an amendment. Well, I was trying to see, I, ha, I do have one question, but I can wait until your comments. Well, we, I'll do comments after questions. Okay, that's why I was asking if it was a question or a comment. So I just wanted to be clear, Mr. Lassiter, that you indicated that through a collaborative effort and partnership with the administration that you could ex actually accomplish this, though we wouldn't call it an audit, but the terminology you utilize to look at citywide cost savings and efficiencies. Yes, ma'am. If, if the administration would also uh, graciously assign somebody from budget to work with us on the, this project. And, um, you know, if it's council's desire that they want to do an outside uh, consultant, I have said I'd be willing to, you know, support that effort through helping develop the RFP or whatnot. But, um, yes, uh, and I just reflected back and I shared this with Selena and her team last year when we were going through the recession in a little locality further south of here, uh, a similar proposal came up and we pulled together an internal team back in 09 and 010. But it was, it was singularly focused on, you know, where can we find cost savings? Okay. Uh, and, uh, and we were successful, but there has to be a commitment on, on, on uh, both sides uh, 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 of the aisle here to, to address this. And there is a commitment. If you recall, in 2016, we were able to close a $12 million deficit based upon efficiencies being identified. Uh, and so I have experienced it and what that really entails, and we're willing to dedicate the staff that's necessary to provide city council as well as the public with the information they desire. Thank you. Ms. Gray? So um, this came forward, and Ms. Larson and I have been talking with individuals in the business community who utilize these um, types of management reviews, Fortune 200, Fortune 100 corporations, um, that it's not, an, it's not an attack on a 
DuPont or an Altria when they utilize these. It's they want to increase their bottom line, and they have internal auditors as well. But this is this is more of a a, a deeper review. For instance, we've audited multiple times our permits and inspections, but we know that it continues. The operation continues to be a challenge. So perhaps it's, you know, important to see how someone from a perspective who looks at those operations throughout the country and and even internationally, what is working, what the newest technologies are, potential recommendations for reorganization, um, um, how those resources are distributed. Um, another thing, and we've talked to some colleagues, another thing that um, continually comes up is resource allocation by area of town or how those resources are equitably distributed because many times it's a squeaky wheel and it's a response kind of thing. So there, there are other things that are it takes a more global approach to it than the particular recommendations. I think we need both. I don't think it's that we don't need the function of the auditor's office looking at those things, but I think we need a more global perspective of our operations and management of City Hall. Okay. Ms. Larson, did you... Yes, I concur with Ms. Gray, and I think in the grand scheme of our budget, we're talking about a a small amount of money. Um, I appreciate that you all are standing next to each other and that have agreed on the collaboration. I think it's important that council put forward and approve these funds so that we have them. Lou, I know you have, you know, a, a, an amount in your budget that you can use for th- when things come up. Um, I, I think it's good to keep keep something in there and not use it all towards this. Um, and I, I do think having a set of eyes from from an outside perspective would be beneficial. Um, not only to us sitting in these seats, but just to the entire city and the taxpayers and and collecting that information and using it as we head into next budget cycle would be great. Any additional questions, comment, council? Ms. Robertson, and then I'll come back to the both of you. Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, I think my question in regards to this, I do think that it would be good for us to have a um, a model of a baseline that we would use to do our assessments of where we are overall as far as the city is concerned. And I don't think this is something that is a one-time thing. I think it's a it's a revisit evaluation on some frequency and the outcomes of having something like this done would probably also help us to prioritize areas that we uh, may be more concerned about or may have greater opportunities for more efficiencies. And 
um, as it also relates to the allocation of resources, you know, citywide and whether or not there are certain sectors of the city that needs more resources than others. So an equitable lens on it would be beneficial from that perspective. But my question is, as it relates to the amendment, um, I hear you saying that you all will work together and collaborate to to have such a study done for the city. Is that something that you are saying you are able to do within your own uh, budgets without any additional appropriation? And if that is the case, would it be uh, possible for you all to at least present us with a a strategy of how you plan to get get it done, uh, what type of time frame may be necessary, how much resources may be needed uh, collectively from you in order to make this happen. Okay, so um, what this would require, uh, I have a certain amount of audit hours that I'm able to, to, to do our risk-based plan. So I would have to carve out some of those audit hours of my staff, probably a, a more senior staff that has a broad understanding of the city as a whole, to um, dedicate it to this project. I, I, scoping it out, I would think logically, if we were working with the budget department, it would have to start over the summer just based on their work cycle with the hopes of delivering something to council by uh, Christmas or the following budget session before the budget season started. Um, in terms of uh, I did want to speak to the, the little bit of consulting dollars that we do have already in the city auditor's budget. The last couple of years, we've used those for the IT network security assessments, which are very critical to this city in terms of uh, preventing uh, issues uh, that some other localities in the nation have had. And, and that's something that you constantly, constantly need to be vigilant in looking at. Um, Certainly, the funding for these positions would help uh, in terms of the auditor's budget be able to allocate staffing to that and keep the other audit work that we're anticipating based on that risk-based audit plan going forward. I don't know if that answers your questions. but And if I may just add a little bit uh, as it relates to baseline information, uh, for the past three and a half years, we've been identifying efficiencies and cost savings. So I think if we're trying to establish a baseline, it's probably beneficial for council to receive that information to see what we have done as it relates to the operations of the city. And I think that will be helpful as we make decisions long-term as well. But looking at the information that you're requiring as you get ready for the next budget cycle that you would like to utilize. So I think that's number one. Number two, uh, as uh, Mr. Lasseter indicated, uh, we're willing to commit the staff that would be necessary as it relates to what you have as an amendment. Now, if your amendment is migrating to something that deals with configuration down to the department level, division level, et cetera, that is something a bit more extensive. So I think that clarity certainly needs to be understood, not only by us, but also the public, if that is what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, But looking at cost savings, efficiency, based upon what I'm reading, uh, those are things that we constantly do now. We do have a document that can reflect where we are today based upon what we've done over the last 
a couple of years based upon the direction not only coming from city council but also the direction coming from the mayor because we're always looking for better ways to make sure government is efficient. So it's not something that we're trying to decide today on April 1st, uh, 2019. This has been something that we've been doing as part of what we do as administrators and uh, Mr. Laster indicated the mission of what his office was created to do. So we're very committed to that. Uh, if you were to ask me the question whether or not you need to expend $200,000 when you're looking at other major needs that you've all heard about, the mayor's put in his budget as it relates to schools, employees, teachers, and et cetera, we think dollars can be better suited uh, in this budget to focus on those uh, needs. Uh, Mr. Ladster has laid out a plan as it relates to the staffing being uh, necessary if we're trying to look at the cost savings and efficiencies that we're willing to commit the staff necessary to do that. And based upon that information, if council still thinks there's a need to invest more money for a deeper, deeper dive going into units, going into divisions, because I've heard reconfiguration, et cetera, that's beyond what the amendment says. Uh, but certainly we take the guidance from city council. We've articulated what we think is possible, palatable, so that you can have a document by the end of the fall uh, before the new budget process will begin. Thank you. Ms. Gray. So, um, and I think it's fair to say that we have some brokenness and lost trust with the public, and I think that's, um, that's where we're coming from. Um, not just rebuilding trust, but rebuilding confidence. Um, this is the third year that I've gotten, the third March that I've been here, that I've gotten numerous calls from business owners who have not to date gotten their business licenses. We're, we're in April. Um, and I know, I don't know about other council people, but I spend a great deal of my time, I know Ms. Trammell does, we have to get written permission from the businesses. So we go pick those up. We come, we go through the process of trying to get licenses reissued. They tell us there's a third party that will print and mail those licenses. We wait several weeks and those licenses still don't come. Then we have to come back down here um, to get printed copies. It's, it's gotten, I've seen slight improvement. The, the slight improvement I've seen is that now there are people who go, actually are going out to these businesses asking for them to produce their licenses. So there, are, there is somebody in City Hall who's looking for the licenses, but the folks who have paid for them aren't getting them. Um, I also had um, an email a few days ago from an individual where one of our finance department folks went out to their business and told their employees they had not paid their taxes when they had sent an email showing proof of payment. Um, same thing for real estate tax payments that aren't hitting the book on time. So there are issues that, systemic issues that need to be focused and on, and we need to be looking outside of what we're doing to fix it. So I think, I think it's twofold. We're, we're going to help build public trust by saying, hey, we, we acknowledge there are some issues. And two, we're going to get some solid recommendations, industry recommendations on how to fix it and, and start implementing those changes as we move forward through the budget process. Any other uh, questions or comments? Um, I, again, I just want to go back, Mr. Lasseter, and then I have a question for you, Ms. Gray, as well. 
um, the comparative analysis. So just want to make sure. So with the additional staffing dollars that we've just talked about, the 60000 and it sounds as if even separate and aside from that, but certainly with that, that you would be able to allocate staff time to work towards the execution of this type of analysis. Right. The additional staff hours would enable me to, uh, per se, not rob from Peter to pay Paul. Okay. I have the additional hours then to allocate from the audit plan to, to, to assist on this effort. Okay. But once again, if it's the council's decision to oh, go with the external, I'd be more than willing to support yeah, no, the I RFP and, and whatnot. It's, it's a serve at the direction as to which way council uh, would have us go. And, and again, mm-hmm. successfully was able to do a similar uh, exercise uh, years ago uh, focused on cost savings with, with folks from budget um, before and in another locality. And, and the additional piece, in addition to, so that's good to hear that you've, you have that bench strength, um, but also being able to drill down in terms of a particular um, department like uh, the one that was raised in terms of permits and licensing, this would encompass that kind of look. Well, that's uh, different. That, I would say that I've got an audit going on right now of the permits and licensing. It's a scheduled audit that was approved on the FY19 audit plan. So that's, that's an audit that we're currently in the middle of doing right now that's a regular scheduled audit. Okay. It's also an audit, so, but, but just the, to that's, add. That's the um, building permits area. Okay. But might Ms. Gray? I, yeah, might I add that that's an audit that was presented in 2017 on that very department, um, updated in 2017 when I got here. Talking about before my time, I apologize. But, but I think do it, we have? Well, it may have been 2016, but in 2017, I know the audit committee was presented an update of the permits and inspections recommendations, and there were. Good afternoon, Lily Hernandez, auditor's office. Uh, we conducted an audit of the development plan. Permits and inspections, I believe, was in 2012, maybe. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. So, any other questions or comments? Seeing no? Okay. So, uh, what's before us, you've heard uh, from Mr. Lassiter and Ms. Coffee Glenn relative to the ability to work collaboratively to perform this, the additional staff time allocation, et cetera. Um, do we have consensus relative to proceeding and so I can okay thank you with that uh, that concludes our business for today Uh, I will uh, look forward to seeing everyone yes Close uh, in regards to this amendment. I do think that it's important that we do a more detailed explanation and scope of the work that we're really looking for to be done. Well, um, the scope there would have to be an RFP, and the auditor has already indicated that he would uh, work with council relative to the development of that, so we can see that prior to 
um, posting is what you're yeah, I think, uh, and. Because I think we have some different expectations we're looking for. I so, think, yes. Yeah, and I think that's, that's going to be critical that we define that to the greatest extent that we possibly can as a part of the budget. Exactly. Because, uh, otherwise I'm not sure that, you know, we're clear. Exactly. Ms. Larson? Um, and I would recommend, and I just mentioned this to Councilwoman Robertson that we, also do an accompanying, accompanying text amendment with it for the budget that further defines what we're looking for and how to spend mm -hmm. the 200000 Okay. So in advance of, uh, yes, I hear you. Any other comment? Uh, seeing no other business before this body, we will adjourn and we will reconvene for organizational development at 5. Thank you.